You are now listening to the sound of the simulation. Hey, as we record The Matrix. That's right. Unfortunately, no one can be told what this podcast is. You have to experience it for yourself. There's a line that my teacher, my math teacher in high school said when he was teaching us about matrices. Hmm. It's kind of fun. Yeah. That was probably the number one quoted, like, kind of thing that I heard people say, I think. This movie was big, and so you'd hear people like, you have to shoot a basketball shot, and they'd say there is no spoon, or certain things entered into the lexicon, certainly whoa, and... (laughs) I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu, yeah, that was a big one, just because people (laughs) like to make fun of Keanu Reeves, although I'm going to be a hardcore Keanu Reeves apologist, and not in the ironic internet way where they think it's cute that Keanu Reeves is a thing, but actually I think he's quite good in this movie. But we can get to that later. Anyway, the number one thing that I heard was, unfortunately you cannot be told what blank is. You have to experience it for yourself. I feel like that one got pulled out Mm -hmm. a lot around the old high school and stuff. So, there you go. It's Sanity at the Movies and we're talking about a seminal cyberpunk classic of the 90s cinema maybe one of the most important movies of the last 30 years not one of the best but one of the most important certainly a Mm -hmm. i've been thinking a lot about this and going back and forth and trying to coalesce my thoughts for this podcast and you could argue that this movie influenced everything that there is no marvel that there is no all the things that we take for granted. There's no Snyder cut. You could also argue maybe more humbly that this movie is just a signpost of everything. That's the easier argument to make. That it's the it's the the signpost is probably the right. Is it? Yeah, like the yeah, it's like the manifestation, the heartbringer, the. You have these things that just sort of like show up, and you wonder if. Uh, do they shape the zeitgeist or do they express. embody it? Do yeah, they yeah. express it? Yeah. Did, did mm-hmm. somebody perfectly channel it, you know, at the moment? So it was like all those other things were inevitable, but the Wachowskis were there first. They tapped in. They were the lightning rod. Mm-hmm. They were the, you know, the cipher mm-hmm. to, yeah. The cipher, Jake. <laughs> the, uh, speaking of great the diesel, the performances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Joey Pants. He's the best. I call him Joey Pants. Good, good like, to know. Just like. People in interviews that talk about him, call him, because we're good friends. Yeah. I mean, this movie feels especially profound, I think, and and like it was pointing the way now, like with, I dare say, uh, Black Lives Matter, with, I dare say, a lot of the us versus them narratives that are out there about the big bad, mm-hmm. whatever it is, whether it's systemic racism or the government or... Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it, in some ways, I don't think anybody ever articulated this or I ever heard it articulated until I had this thought. It's it's as it's as much a zombie movie as anything else. Mm-hmm. But it's a kind of zombie movie that is just really sophisticated in that sense. Well for one thing it's a zombie movie that non horror aficionados will watch. Exactly right. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean you could argue everything that this there's not a thing you could name that this movie does that you couldn't point to another nerdier more obscure movie whether it's blade which got to the sort of techno scored violence first or, or blade 2 which did the bullet time kind of thing first yeah or in its own so 
whatever. Blade. Yeah, Blade Two really got this kind of action. Uh, Dark City. Dark City is what I was going to say, mm-hmm. which I've never seen, but I see people talk about all the time. Well, for for a true nerd who likes cyberpunk or likes noir or likes any of this stuff, for somebody who read the comic books and saw the anime and all that, Dark City is the one that actually got it right. Like that actually isn't lamestream. Like the Matrix. I mean, we're going to talk about this ad nauseum, but it ends with the Karate Kid plot. Like it, it, it's it's so perfectly calibrated to bring all these influences in, but then put them in this really pretty mainstream Joseph Campbell but that's, package. And but that, that's that's the, the magic. That's, that's the beauty. Why it's yeah. so important? Yeah, that's and why it's, it's important. That's why everybody. we're not talking about Dark City. Exactly that's right. right. Yeah, the the kind of people that are like, uh, you know, popular movies are stupid and not important. It's just like. Okay, yeah, the movies that shape everybody and introduce these ideas and concepts to everybody and make them mainstream for everybody and change the way everybody experiences movies and the way that movies are made for everybody, yeah, those aren't important. Mm-hmm. Shut up! <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. Like, oh, Dark City and these other movies and things may be the influencers, but the people who are able to take and, and make the pop mm-hmm. version that the masses can consume and enjoy those that's genius and it matters and well without ra- without trying to wade into race at all elvis is really important and it doesn't matter that he stole from a bunch of black guys he's the person that made rock music the blues mm-hmm. and so you can and go back and you know I, I would rather listen to robert johnson in a lot of time you know a lot of times but, but do you know who robert johnson is if elvis didn't hit the scene no, right? We needed Elvis to just be a bland Midwestern white guy who was going to make it palatable, who was going to make it something that grandma wouldn't be too freaked out by. Right. And the story in my family is that my great grandma saw Elvis was so freaked out by the hip movements that she died shortly thereafter. I'm sure that's not literally <laughs> true, but that's that's the legend that wow. once Elvis broke the culture, she was just like, I'm out. I'm tapping out. I'm done. <laughs> and then she just and died. Then, and then she died. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is intense. Which is a great story, whether it's true or not. The popularizers matter. Yeah, the popularizers matter. And so, yeah, that's that's why The Matrix is important. I mean, that's why we're never going to do an episode the about Dark City. The Beatles were just stealing from all these people. Okay, but... The um, Beatles are the thing that everybody else stole from. Exactly, exactly. So, it, it, it makes a difference. Yeah. So... This movie is important. I guess we'll figure out. Wilco's as... really cool. Boney Bear is really cool. Radiohead's really cool. Yeah, well, <laughs> Beatles did it all mm-hmm. first. And I, don't, did it I don't like them, the Beatles that much. It doesn't matter. You it don't have to. Matter. You just acknowledge their place. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, and respect it. Oh, but it's the cheap pop version. Well, okay. Respect that. Like, Yeah, but it's actually not cheap. It's but, it's not. There's a lot of craftsmanship. And The Matrix, too, has a lot of its own craftsmanship. Oh, yeah, The Matrix is a beautifully designed movie. I mean, it's just, I don't think, I don't know that we're going to be, by and large, positive about this movie because it's also cynical, mean, violent, stripped of morality. There's all kinds of things we can yeah. criticize. And, 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 the, and all the stuff that's hollow about it is really more apparent down the road than yeah, it was at and, the time. And, and it's laying the groundwork for transsexualism and all kinds of things in its own way well that was the other thing i was going to say that i just think is so i never saw so much more profoundly obvious now yeah and especially with uh, lena and lily wachowski as they like to call themselves now saying that it was a trans narrative Mm -hmm. now i've actually watched interviews with them where they talk about it and they will admit that they weren't thinking trans at the time they will say like 
My inner transness, they actually use yeah. the word transness. This is the way they, I'm not making fun of them. This is what they yeah. say. Like my transness was coming out. Manifesting itself. Manifesting itself. And, and, but. And that's true. It, yeah, it's very <laughs> true. Well, they had the character of Switch who was originally supposed to be one gender in the Matrix, one gender outside of the Matrix. And the studio said no. And so Switch was just a very androgynous character called Switch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were trying to push the envelope as much as possible. Yeah. But they are also, and we'll talk a lot about this, I'm sure they are so smart about exactly where they push the envelope and exactly where they don't push the envelope. Yeah, and mm-hmm. just so anybody who is popping into this and doesn't have some history, that doesn't know who the Wachowskis are, no. If you've watched The Matrix, you see in the title credits, the Wachowski brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you in National Feminism Month or Women's Month or Women's Day or whatever, go into Apple and see movies by famous female directors, mm-hmm. you'll see The Matrix because the Wachowski brothers have both transitioned and now consider themselves women. Right. Yep. And before this movie came out, I think all that they directed was there was like a lesbian action movie. Yeah, it's called Bound mm-hmm. and uh, it's got Joey, Joe, Joey Pantaleone or whatever his name plays the gangster. Pantaleano, yeah. maybe? Pantaleano. Pantaleano, yeah, that's right. Pantaleano. Man, that guy says my childhood so much. Like that guy was in everything that I love. The Fugitive was one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah, yeah. That guy just always showed up and was awesome and colorful and, and everything. <laughs> yep. Anyway, uh, we can talk a lot more about it. I'm sure we'll do at least an hour just talking about Joey Pants. But... What were we talking about? Before, well, I, I all, all I was trying to say was the the Wachowskis were making <clears throat> were making gross stuff outside of the mainstream, and then suddenly appeared on everyone's radar right. with the Matrix and figured out how to like how to like you said push the envelope just enough. Well, they're very there. private people. They've actually become they're they're so iconic in the trans liberation movement or whatever it's called that they've sort of become more public. Like they've they've accepted the mantle of responsibility, which means they. They have to be public figures now, but they never used to give interviews before they transitioned. And so that we don't really know a lot about their lives. I mean, we know the basics, but basically they did just kind of appear out of nowhere. They were mm-hmm. some, I think, Chicago boys who liked to make movies and got some jobs writing comics and then wrote a spec script called Assassins, which became a crappy Antonio Banderas movie directed by Richard Donner oh, and yeah. was completely rewritten. And then they did this indie film called Bound which is like a noir-ish kind of sexy. And it's famous for being the first movie where it has lesbians, but that's not the point of the movie. Like there had been movies like mainstream movies about lesbian relationships, but. In in this case, lesbians are incidental. They're incidental. We're not making a big deal about mm-hmm. the fact right. that they're lesbians. They're just lesbians. Right. So it's, so it's considered a classic of queer cinema now. And then they pitched the matrix to warner brothers and did they pitch a trilogy or do they just pitch the matrix just the one and warner brothers was like we don't understand this and so they went and they got an underground comic book artist guy to illustrate the entire thing they got some copies of ghost in the shell the anime and said we want to bring this to life and here's our comic book storyboard and Warner Brothers was, and this is like one of the classic success Hollywood stories. Like, oh, oh yeah, we'd like to spend sixty million on that. This never happens now without uh-huh, IP yeah. that's already famous. Yeah, uh, but this was it's back when you too could. Bad. Yeah, which is too bad. You know, this mm-hmm. is why we we're not going to get like new IP. Like, wouldn't it be nice if someone made some some Something new super superheroes? Was or? it Marvel and DC? Classic right, and <laughs> wasn't just remakes. Of- but 
Yeah, they just go and they say, we've got this thing. It's based on all this other stuff. You can read Neuromancer and you can read the comics, but this is the kind of thing we're trying to do. And Warner Brothers was excited enough about it to pony up the cash. And then I think they filmed the scene that I don't think holds up very well, but we'll talk about it. The Trinity, the the initial altercation with the cops, the thing that opens the movie mm-hmm. and they showed it to the executives and then they had carte blanche. Like that was mm-hmm. so mind blowing at the time. Mm-hmm. Just her little mm-hmm. hover kick or whatever. The little Spider-Man right. pose. The, yeah. Just the, yeah. All that stuff. And then I was like, okay, you guys can do whatever you want. We know this. People gonna are going to go nuts for this. Yeah. And they were absolutely right. And, oh yeah. And yeah. And the action, some of it, I think mostly holds up quite well, but it's hard to put someone back in the mindset of, this is new. How mind-blowing it was at the time. Yeah. The, we had only had Batman movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a dork in a rubber suit <laughs> trying to pretend like he could move around. I mean, I like some of those Tim Burton Batman movies, but the action is always pretty bad. In, in, like, ba- Batman Returns, I say, actually, it's pretty good. The action scenes, though? I, I love mm-hmm. that movie. But... Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think so. If you, they, they have their own very specific flavor Within, within the constraints of dork in a rubber costume, mm-hmm. it actually does work visually. It doesn't pull you out of the movie. At least, that's what I think. Okay, so they figured out... I'll give you that Tim but Burton figured out a way like to do that. But The Matrix yes, is... Yes, that's all I mean. If you want to say one thing where The Matrix was influential and it's, it's absolutely <clears throat> indisputable, it's not a signpost, it was the thing that broke through, they figured out how to do superhero action in a way that yep. is the direct mm-hmm. uh, predecessor. Pre- predecessor of Marvel. And yeah. Well, and Marvel movies don't rarely if ever can compete with the style i mean you think of that rooftop chase with trinity the cgi has gotten better but the style and the, the style. and the actual choreography and the yeah, intentionality it, and the nobody and the puts camera the, shots they don't they don't put the elbow grease into it the way that they yeah, yeah we'll we'll talk about the morality of the lobby scene for example but as a, just as a piece of editing just yes. as a piece of we needed these shots to tell this story of how they're getting from point A to point B in this lobby and it needs to be really exciting and cool and mm. awesome and we have the proper build and this is when this cool thing happens and then we build up to the next cool thing and we mm-hmm. see what they have to achieve. Like it is a perfect piece of action choreography. Like I just I don't know that you could name a better that sort of thing mm-hmm. before or after. Like just uh, the bank heist from Heat. Yeah, Michael Mann would be... I mean, be. It's, it's a different style, but in terms... All I'm saying is in terms of... Choreography. Uh, yeah. Planning. That that scene is as good. Visual storytelling it, through action. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's maybe right. some of the scenes in Mad Max Fury Road for a completely different kind for of... For a completely movie. different If you're just going to throw the best edited and conceived action scenes... Uh, or are you... I'm sorry, are you talking something more... Speci- you have something more specific in mind? Well, I don't know. Just a short piece of choreographed ballet... Of mm-hmm. violence, mm-hmm. that's right. about the best, and I would include John Woo and some of the auteurs mm-hmm. of the right. of the genre in there. Some um, John Wick stuff, John Wick, all that stuff. Yeah. The the lobby scene is just perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. it is it is a perfect action scene. <laughs> so, second you, only to the born. Yeah, yeah. Second only to the crappy. Let's throw some sound effects and <laughs> let's throw some Shake footage in a blender. Add some <laughs> exciting sounds, and then people will think Matt Damon can do something. <laughs> that stuff's great. <laughs> you know, Nathan, you better get ready to throw down in slow motion in this lobby we're recording in. Yeah, my fighting style yeah. will be incredibly clear, coherent, <laughs> <laughs> and mine. 
I'll just win. <laughs> just some, there'll be some sound effects and I'll be lying bloody on the ground. I'm, as everyone knows who's listened to our movie podcast, I'm a Jason Bourne fight scene apologist. I don't apologize for that. And I have admitted on the podcast at various times that Green Grass, in particular, the, the director of the two sequels, I don't count that third, that third Matt Damon or the fourth Matt Damon, but he's he's the best at that sort of thing. Yeah, but unfortunately, he opened Pandora's box, and then Christopher Nolan thought that he could do action scenes. JJ Abrams, likewise. Through. Yeah, and it's just lots like, of people thought they could cheat their way through action scenes. Because and of they that. were wrong. They were wrong, and that is one of the things that's so cool about the Matrix is the the amount of training that our leads have done. I mean, the fact that Hugo, it just cracks me up to think about an actor of Hugo we- Weaving's prestige having to train to do Kung Fu while wearing a suit. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like this guy should be on a stage in Australia somewhere mm-hmm. doing Shakespeare or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Yeah. But instead he's hamming it up as Agent Smith and then learning to do all this ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Kung Fu and he pulls it off. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie, I guess our larger point is to this movie's importance is that what we're talking about I think right so. now just make yeah. sure we close all the loops before we sort move of forward. move forward so mm-hmm. yeah our one point is movies important for all kinds of things for introducing a level i there's some good stuff maybe i mean i actually like the cultural the the racial diversity in the movie the i would argue was cool and, and good probably it's it's so hand in hand with the sexual androgyny of the movie that it's hard to separate them or mm-hmm. to know whether you can call one instinct noble when it's so tethered to this instinct that's obviously bad the androgyny is is interesting the fact that neo and trinity look so much like they're just making love with each other when they kiss they yeah. are such mere images yeah. she's just butch enough like they're both flat-chested skinny people in leather with cheekbones and uh, so creepy and, and black hair that kind of hangs yeah. down like they are it's like the perfect lover would be if you could make the female version of you. Version of you. It is just like there's something profoundly unsettling about it when you start to actually examine it. Yeah. When you, when you start to look at it through a trans lens, as they would, as they would say. Yeah. And then the androgyny of Morpheus, even. And anyway, I guess we'll talk about all that. But yeah, this movie is worth talking about. It's important. That's the point that we've made. So what experiences do you guys bring? What's your what's your history and baggage with The Matrix? Oh, man, I love that movie. Mm. It was... Uh, what year was it released? 99. 99, yeah. So I am, at that point, what, a sophomore in high school, mm-hmm. maybe? And it's just another point in the existential crisis of my life. You mm. know, another touchstone. The mainstreaming, that taking the hero's journey and separating it from any kind of of morality and just letting it be a Nietzschean existentialist kind of thing was profound and cool and engaging. Well, can I just say real quick on that? If you another place where I think you can argue this movie is very influential is that they figured out how to take the sort of Joseph Campbell monomyth and they they figured out something very smart which is that if you take the engine of morality out of it the car still rolls along pretty nicely and I loved I loved that I ate it up I thought it was super cool and and I think that I'm not in any way trying to say this maybe has any place in my conversion I don't know God knows but it certainly feels like another step or another part of my journey of 
this is cool. And, but at the end of the day, it's also really empty and lifeless Mm -hmm. and just like everything else under the sun. It has enough sort of of mm -hmm. that, that when I go back to it, I feel a certain, for for just a minute and then it dies, but I feel a certain excitement or like I'm reconnecting with something. Yeah. Yeah. And for, I mean, I think it's telling that I don't, I think, I think I can't remember, but maybe one time rewatching the Matrix movies after becoming a Christian. This it, this probably isn't the first time of coming back to it since then, hmm. but it might be. It kind of feels like maybe it is. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that can't be true, but but there's something there's enough about it that for me it's just like it represents what I uh, at least on some level enough of what I left behind or enough of what I repented of. Right. That yeah. If only just sort of like that mainstream zeitgeist mm-hmm. type stuff. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I guess the, the kids of today are going to feel this way about Iron Man or something like that, which is weird. Like 20 like year olds really in our church plant think of the Marvel movies this way. Like, oh yeah, I loved that when I was a kid and then I had to reprocess it and it mm-hmm. meant this or that to me. And it's just weird to me that something that feels that relatively recent would hold that place in someone's life. But I'm sure there's people that are in their 50s that are weirded out that the Matrix is like that for us. Probably. Ben, what what did you bring to uh, the party? I would have I would have been a junior I think in high school and I <clears throat> I loved the Matrix. It was one of the first R-rated movies I saw, I want to say. That that helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little like, "Oh no, is the violence going to be terrible?" I was like intimidated. <laughs> going Am I going to want to go shoot up a school? <laughs> No, I didn't actually think that. This is a Columbine of it all that mm. is also connected to the Matrix. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, yeah, and, we should talk about that. But. And I didn't. I wasn't making those connections. I was homeschooled and Columbine felt far off. And, but I, I loved it. And, I, and everyone was talking about, I had a teacher I loved who, who was talking about how it was a Christian allegory. I mean, mm. he knew it wasn't a Christian movie. He wasn't dumb. But, but, he was, but that's how he talked about it. It's like, oh, in yeah. other words, it has a use. It has a use for you as a Christian. Because look at look at the way it maps right. onto. I've never heard of the hero's journey, but uh, I have. Uh, I do understand the basics of the gospel, right? And 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 the Wachowskis, you know, load their movie with Christian names and Christian symbols. Well, also they are just about the uh, the best. I would say better than George Lucas, for example, at these pseudo profundities yes. that really do speak to you. You know, Morpheus says to Neo, all your life you've felt this splinter in your mind. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. And right. it's like, I don't care how ultimately hollow that is. I still, to this Every day- Every single person resonates. With and that. I watch yep. it now and I resonate it with it. I'm yeah. like, yeah. yeah, I do feel that way, Morpheus. Isn't <laughs> yeah. that weird? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had no choice but to actually start this movie while my 13-year-old son was uh, in the kitchen doing some- you know, finishing his chores before he went to bed. And we hit, you know, you hit some things like that. And it's just like, I don't want him hearing this. Like, right. This uh, will not speak from to here, him. Not from here because it will speak to yeah. him. Yep. He's ex- exactly the right age for that to speak to him. Right. Mm. It's like, this is dangerous stuff. Mm. Like, yeah, again, because it's so, so well done. So perfectly mm-hmm. calibrated yeah. to speak to yeah. somebody. To speak to me still. I mean, really, honestly, I know better. And a lot of the movie doesn't like the, you know, there is no spoon. Okay. That's silly. But Mm -hmm. Morpheus just asking questions about the nature of reality. And that's the thing that's. I still get a little tingle. I mean. it's hmm. And it's so poisonous and toxic. Like I thought, okay, he's in there. 
I don't know, like the violence or whatever that's going on. I don't know that I want, you know, but hopefully he's doing his chore. He's not peeking around and whatever. But then it, it's just like the messaging all the way through at every point. I'm just like, I got to put the mute on or I got to put my headphones in and mm-hmm. get, get much on my computer or something. I just don't want this getting under his skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. I, well, what's interesting when I remember myself enjoying it is that for me, like I, I, t- I would talk to people about the Christian allegory to, of it all because that's what I've been taught. But I don't think I ever felt that or felt like it actually mattered. I thought that it mattered in some way. But what I liked, man, what I liked was like being totally immersed in this awesome visual audio world where there's kung fu done to a soundtrack mm-hmm. and everything is, all the colors are perfect. And just just imagining like, all the colors are green. I know. I loved it. I love, <laughs> oh, I, I, I love, love, I love I the still, green I still of it. love the tinting. Oh man, so do I. I yeah. hate over tinting and over saturated <laughs> colors, but I still love the way the Matrix did it. I And so for me, I mean, I wanted to be Neo, in it, but in, in the sense that I wanted to be like, uh, I don't know, a superhero. Mm-hmm. And so... That was that was the level it attained. It was like I just wanted to be immersed in it over and over again. And I saw it seven times in the theater, <laughs> and but it it didn't have anything that I can remember to do with an existential awakening, or a, I was a Christian at the time, or any real connection to my Christian faith. Anything that I thought like, yeah, like this is this is cool getting action. me. That it was it was cool action. It was the first. It was one of the first times that cinema. Well. No, that's that's not true. I had other things I liked as a kid that I scenes that I would imagine and redirect in my head over and over again. I always did that. But The Matrix was like the next level of like living inside a cinematic world that completely captivated you and engulfed you. And what's well, in it, auteur's vision? It's like what we talked about in the Snyder Cut. Or yeah, that's uh, right. Bringing. Uh, when we started talking about Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. and some of these guys, yeah. it's just like Snyder has a style and a feel and it's his own and he's making his own world and it's all internal and it all makes sense in the context of the movie and it doesn't make sense outside of cinema mm-hmm. and, yeah no it's yeah this is a great this is a great, great example, example of, of exactly th- that kind of thing that's yeah. right and i don't think it did me any good <laughs> <laughs> i i don't i'm sure it did me some harm i mean it's it's funny to think how no one talked about the gross sexual sexuality of it all that I remember. And a lot of people were talking about it in my spheres, but I don't remember anyone talking about that. Well, here's something that's interesting. I remember our 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 beloved pastor, Tim Bailey, who has his pulse on sexuality better than anyone we know. He saw this movie. I don't remember him talking about it. He was kind of like bummed out by the violence. You know, there were there were certain talking points that he had mm-hmm. about it. But I just think this movie was really very good at it's subversion. Mm. Like I, I, I just think it's a masterclass in how to toe the line of introducing some things like that, seeding them, but really keeping it from ever. You know, I mean, the classic example, which I, I use as a reference point for talking about all kinds of things, is the character of Trinity, right? Who is so well, progressive in some ways, but then they pull her back into the subordinate woman role. Oh, man, well, th- it's not thoroughly just you or end. us. It's, I mean. The, they've given a name to that sort of thing, and it's Trinity. Right. Right. Yeah. Feminists will make fun of this. Like, oh, really? You're going to have this woman? You're going to pay lip service to a woman being strong, but then she's just the love interest at the end? And it's like, yes, it's genius. It's yeah. it's exactly how you do it 
It's so mm-hmm. smart. And the yep. Wachowskis were never this smart again. But yeah. <laughs> they really knew how to thread that needle perfectly. Yeah. And even the the concept of it's as close as you get to the force being an equalizer too, right? Where women can credibly fight men because they can tap into the force. Well, when you're mm-hmm. in the matrix, you just have to have mind powers, right. the ability to see the matrix and bend the matrix. There's no spoon. It's in your head. There, right. Yeah, there is no spoon. Mm-hmm. You have to bend yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there is no, it doesn't matter how strong, physically strong she is versus anybody else. It's just, can she, can she bend the matrix or can't she? You know, mm-hmm. she can. So she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've always thought that Trinity is one of the most successful of those types of characters. I just buy actually a little bit less watching it now, but I think that's just because I'm older and by God's grace, mm-hmm. uh, more godly. But I, I, Trinity, you don't ask the question of why this little girl can beat up these big men as much as I usually do, even when I'm not trying to be a prude or whatever, but I'm just like, eh, I don't really buy it. Like they, they just know how to shoot action. I guess that's as much as anything. And they know how to bend physics in a smart way. Mm-hmm. So what were you saying, Ben? So I, th- I think I was probably done saying it. I, I just, I never got any existential tingles out of it. And that's interesting to me. I don't know why not. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you weren't ready to. may have been ahead of it. I mean. Maybe. But I feel like in another sense, I was behind. I mean, to me, it was just like. Would the, you Would you have read art- uh, like William whatever. Gibson at this time in your life? Would no. You, would you have been no. familiar with the sci-fi no. like. I, I was familiar with a lot of sci-fi stories, but I don't I wasn't into cyberpunk. That mm-hmm. came a lot later. Reading William Gibson came years later. Right. And and discovering like, oh, well, all this stuff fed into that. Right. Discovering anime came later. Then we'll give a rundown on some of the influences if people are interested. But yeah, that's interesting. It, it was it was it was like the discovery of a new audiovisual world, mm-hmm. you know, to watch The Matrix. And going back, it still holds up pretty well in that sense. Yeah, yeah, I I think it does. Some of the special effects are a little bit less good. Yeah, um, but it but it's amazing how relatively good they still are. Because I I would say if you compare it to Iron Man, the craftsmanship is just nowhere doesn't touch it. Right. Iron Man's craftsmanship it was done a year after you watched it. Mm-hmm. Action, special effects maybe not, but action, putting scenes together, just nothing on the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Wait, a second, Iron Man would have been ten years later. Yeah. Uh, right. So that was a confusing link. What I'm saying is I was thinking of this when you were bringing up the new touchstone for the next generation, right? Okay. which is Iron Man. Mm-hmm. So their touchstone, which came so many years later, right. does not hold up as well technically, I think, as a film. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Although I will say I found myself, I, I'm so tired of the whole Marvel thing. I have no interest. I mean, we're going to see them, I assume, but I have no interest in seeing any of the new Marvel movies. I just don't care right now. But Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man. I want to see Spider-Man, right. I guess. And the only reason to see, well, and that means you probably have to see Doctor Strange. Yeah, I, I'm going to see them all. I, I'll pay my money. I'm, a, I'm an American, for crying out loud. But <laughs> those are the only ones that I, I'm interested in. I can't I have think any what interest else. left. There's Black Widow, and there's Eternals, and there's Terrible. Shang-Chi. And... Sure. Yeah, maybe I won't see them all. Shang-Chi, I'll see. But, but the thing I was going to say is, I'm so tired of the whole Marvel thing, and all the snark, and everything about Marvel. I did find myself wistfully thinking about how Marvel movies have a sense of humor <laughs> while oh, watching yeah. this movie. It's right. so serious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's visually funny. I mean, they know how to yeah. build in a gag like we've just decimated the lobby and we're going to hold a shot of the <laughs> and have the little piece of <laughs> pillar crumble or whatever. Yeah, like right. they, mm-hmm. right. they, they are funny 
visual filmmakers having having the uh, sprinkler system go on over the agents yeah yeah, yeah. you get a lot funny. of uh, mileage out of agent smith in general just his laconic reactions <laughs> non-reactions to, <laughs> to things yeah 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 so this movie this movie does i don't want to say this movie is humorless bizarre comedic timing oh man he will while being totally serious he's a like genius. it's just what a what a comedic straight man mm. gene is really yeah. cool he's it so is good. really, really cool. cool help with your land ladies Garbage. You help your landlady take out her garbage. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the world. Yeah, no, he, he knows exactly how much to lay it on, which is such a, a, a nice trick. But everything Super in this movie, fun. so everybody's just so perfectly calibrated. That that is the word of the day for me. It probably is calibration because <laughs> this movie is just perfect the way it's calibrated. So for me, I think I probably it's funny Peter catching a little bit of Agent Smith and being like. What's Elrond doing here? Yeah, it's exactly. It's oh, like, no. What you should understand is that everybody, when Elrond showed up, laughed mm-hmm. because what's Agent Smith doing is Elrond. Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> why I, is Agent Smith wearing a wig? Uh, <laughs> wearing a wig and a weird dopey crown. No, like, no Elrond, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, know, I well, always hated that he showed up. Peter Jackson's such an idiot. I mean, he's oh. so tone deaf because he gives him, give, his first line is, Welcome to Rivendell, <laughs> Mr. Pag, which is the most Agent Smith thing to say. Yeah, in a close-up. And yeah. Yeah, do not, I mean, at least give him a line that is not going to evoke. Evoke, yeah, just don't evoke the Matrix. Right. If you want, after you've established in everybody's mind an Elrond that's completely different than Mr. Smith, to get a gag in down the line, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe. Right. Maybe. Maybe. But only after you. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Mr. I mean, Baggins. it just takes me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Frodo. We, we missed you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. That would have been, awesome. been that, really oh, great. Oh, wow. But, but, yeah. but uh, I mean, I, I don't, as immersed and ready to buy into Lord of the Rings as I was in that moment, like, I... I I remember laughing out loud. Well, I was I was sitting in a theater opening <laughs> oh, no. day. The whole audience was with the movie the whole time. It was a great audience experience. Like everybody loved it. You know, just one of those fun experiences where everybody's jacked into the movie. And but when Agent Smith came out and said "Welcome to Rivendell," everybody laughed. Oh, no. <laughs> we were just all like, "Nope, <laughs> we rejected." <laughs> Not Hugo Weaving's fault. Totally Peter Jackson's tasteless. Yeah, fault. And then, I don't know, after you've cast Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith, an elf? No. It's it's a casting. No. It's as much casting. Like, that's such an uphill problem to have. Red Skull is another thing. Mm-hmm. But a villain role is another thing. Uh, a credible side character on your hero's journey can be another thing, too. But that sort of, like, like a, a mystical... I've got to have some ethos about me mm-hmm. role. Like, yeah, no, it's, that, that close to the same thing in the matrix. Like, yeah, no, it's, it wasn't good. Hmm. Well, um, you, you could be like Lawrence Fishburne and just commit to playing Morpheus in every role after that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, well, or you could be like basically done. The person I feel sorry for is Carrie Ann Moss because I think she's oh. a good actress, but the role of Trinity is so limiting and I'm sure she just got a million. Can you come talk like this and wear leather? offers and so she played in some indie films she was in memento some stuff like that but i think probably this movie both gave her a career and ended her career Mm -hmm. all in one movie i hope she got a nice 
paycheck out of the sequels at least which i'm sure she did and she's coming back for number four so maybe she got a nice paycheck she did uh what was i saying there's a loop i need to close here why did we get on to elrond was, we were we were talking about the comedy of the movie or the lack of humor in the dialogue and the performance of weaving and yeah and I, wishing you were talking about marvel marvel and wishing there's just you get it, getting a little wistful about the yeah, let's have a character that has a sense of humor and let's not make it stupid, whatever the kid's name is. Mouse. Mouse or, right. you know, that is one of the things that's sort of soul deadening about this movie is that the only humor comes from these crass cipher and mouse. Yeah. These kind of gross side characters that they want you to have tender feelings towards them. Yeah, but Tank comes the closest just because yes. he loves his brother. Yeah. Yeah. But even his, his only memorable moment is frying a bad guy and saying some halfway written Arnold Schwarzenegger line or mm-hmm. you know yeah. believe it or not you here's a good rule for writing a, a line that you say before you kill somebody which is a great trope of the movies it can't be too long yeah. you, you don't want like a long it feels know. really long yeah. believe it or not you're still gonna burn you sucker like that's that's too much it just needs to be hasta la vista baby or I'll be back or uh, stick around, as Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> says after he impales the guy in Predator. <laughs> <laughs> These are the kinds of kill lines that we need. What he should have done is just shot him and yep, then said, him. I don't care what you believe. <laughs> yeah, or something. Been... There's your miracle. Or, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. There's any... Yeah, any number. Yeah, we could... Fixed. Solved. End of episode. End of episode. Good. All right, this movie rocks. So, this I movie... Mean, it does make you... Like it doesn't try to, it doesn't want you to be sympathetic to, to dude face selling out to the machines, but mm-hmm. like what exactly are they living for here? Yeah, they Just do, the they do, they do make freedom. They they make reality That's so right. unpleasant. And when we yeah. finally get to Zion, they make the city of Zion and the sequel so unpleasant. Oh it's my like, goodness. why are we all united around this? Yeah. Well, it's, it is the kind of thing that we've talked about multiple times in other places, which is like, it's not what people actually fight for. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not what motivates them to fight. What motivates people to fight is a wife and kids. Right. And well, the 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 hollowness of this movie, I felt it so much. Yeah. It's that. It's that Neo doesn't have anything to fight for. It's like, you know, Neo, you're going to go save Morpheus, you know. Why do you think you can? Morpheus believes in me. I believe in something too. What do you believe? I believe that I can save Morpheus. Wait. What? Uh, what? <laughs> do you, so you're, you're fighting... To prove that you are able to fight? fight? What? You're believing to prove that you can believe? believe? You're believing because you have a belief that you can believe. I mean, there's nothing. Because I choose to. Yeah, exactly. It's just like. That's it. You that's just restated the problem. Yeah, but <laughs> I. pretended that it was a profound answer to the question. It's not. That's the. That's how vapid. And I, I guess to. To maybe the their credit that's how vapid existentialism and existentialist thought really is that's how vapid nietzsche and well that's that's what i want to make the point yes it is empty but i also think you have to give the movie credit what they've done is they've taken like our listeners know what the joseph campbell what i mean when i say joseph campbell's monomyth you should just go over it real quick again i mean i think they do but well jake's our best uh person to distill it for people probably okay so Campbell was a disciple of Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a disciple of Freud. Jung saw that there was a problem in the rationalist movement of 
coming out of the entire enlightenment and said people actually need narrative truth, a, a way to understand themselves in the context of the story of humanity. And that's what religion has always given people. And we're trying to take that away from people. But what they need is narrative truth. If you've ever watched the Jordan Peterson video, he's a disciple of Jung. Carl Jung as well. Yeah. And so he, what Jung did is he went back and he's like, you know, there are these themes in religion and religions across the world that are all similar and common and are all about us finding our place in the story of the ongoing story of humanity. And if I can just sort of pull out these archetypes that are consistent across the board, and we can understand them as our own sort of subconscious processing of our place in the world and what it means to be human and what it means to be human inside this massive universe and what it means to be a person, an individual, then I can, I can give people narrative meaning to their life and it, it, it devoid of religion itself. And so he conceives of these archetypes and the concept of the monomyth and Joseph Campbell comes along and does the work of really pulling it together in a book called uh, Here with a Thousand Faces. Yep. And it's basically it's basically stealing the gospel story of redemption and drawing connections also to similar themes in mythology in and ancient other in ancient mythologies and trying to create a secular story that everybody resonates deeply with that's rooted in some kind of ancient uh, truth. And this is why in all kinds of movies, dumb people who write for dumb organizations are like, oh, I see the gospel in this movie. Mm -hmm. Well, Joseph Campbell, back in the 1920s or 30s, or whenever he was writing, wrote the playbook, mm -hmm. the redemptive arc of the hero from leaving his front door and, 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 and Tolkien followed it, like Tolkien read it, like the Inklings read this stuff. And when you see people who are like, C.S. Lewis understood that the Jesus was the one true myth, or <laughs> right? Like, and they think they're getting this stuff from Lewis, but what they're actually doing is getting young filtered through Lewis mm -hmm. and filtered even through Tolkien and some of these other people, okay? And so Campbell, hugely important to all storytelling uh, that we understand today because people just follow the template and and all the idiots are like i see the gospel in this and what they see is yeah you you, you see somebody who has read the playbook from joseph campbell and is following the playbook step by step by step by step in the process mm -hmm. and so typically there's always there's often something mystical and religious about this it, it's meant to give a feeling of mm -hmm. mystical religiosity Right. That's why when Lucas did it and said this is what he's doing, he used the force, mm. right, to give a sense of mystical religiosity to this. Well, it's a little bit like the 12 steps in AA. You meaning. can believe in the chair is your God, but you need some, you need a divine motivating force in order for the narrative yeah. to work. Mm -hmm. And so if you listen to Jordan Peterson talk, you don't really ever know whether he really believes in Jesus, but you know he believes that there's a story of a man named Jesus and that that story is very important and, and informs. very potent and powerful. Yeah. And if you embrace that, it will change your life. And if you embrace it, it will do all kinds of good for you in ways that maybe he doesn't understand and wants to think of in kind of like evolutionary subconscious terms, but he knows that there's potency there, mm -hmm. right? And so, the, what, the, what the Wachowskis do is they say, "What if we, what if we do all of that, but instead of introduce the mystical force, we just substitute an existentialist philosophy 
that actually isn't all that mystical and spiritual, but is actually just really materialistic. Mm-hmm. And let's have whatever mystique we get be about you know things that kind of happen inside the matrix and neo and stuff like that but you know let's and then it gets really weird in the two in films two and three but in this first one it's just like let's just have it be raw existentialism yeah well and i think the the point that i originally wanted to make with all that is i think a lot of times it's easy for people who are criticizing the movie to think that that's one of its flaws. It's a little bit like what I want to say with the lobby scene either. You know, people have often wondered why not just set up that those cops are a computer program or that they're bad guys so that when we're blowing them away, we can feel a little bit better about it. And it's because, and the answer is because it feels great to blow away good cops because that's part of the kick that you get out of it is that it's nihilistic and it's mean. And if you said that those guys were all computer programs, which they did, they had to, after Columbine and in the wake of some stuff, they fixed quote unquote this in the sequels. And some of those scenes don't play as well because you know, it's just computer programs. When you know, they're just slaughtering people. It, it feeds something. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying it's potent. And in the same way, I think, making a hero's journey that follows the beats but is entirely nihilistic is not a bug of this movie it's, it's a feature it's a feature it's why people tapped into this and that's this brings that's me why I did. yeah this brings me to my it sounds like that's not why ben tapped into it i guess but i mean i'm sure that's that's part of the reason the movie worked so well and immersed me is yeah, because of that feeling of discovery. I just mean I didn't feel like it actually You weren't. It it, it didn't it didn't make me ask any questions. Right. That I remember. And that's that seems strange to me. Well, you also said something really interesting to me off mic uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about doing this movie, Ben, which is you said you made a crucial mistake in the way that you thought it in the innocent sort of way oh, that you thought about yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell people about that? Yeah, you mean the club? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it the way I watched it is, man, this opening scene with the club is gross, it's grungy, but Neo is going to be saved from this awful world, which, <laughs> which is which is the exact opposite. The club- uh, It's like with, the, best, with, the best, most reflective of the reality that we're building towards, most reflective of what Zion will be in the- That's, that's right. right. That's right. It's like all the place with, with the foul sexuality, the BDSM stuff, the lesbianism- all the all the all the grotesque stuff and Rob Zombie singing mm-hmm. a blasphemous song, Dragula. Yeah, that's the name of Rob Zombie's song. Okay, yeah. and that's actually that's what we're being saved to. Of course, you go to the club like this to find salvation, to free your mind from the confines of what you're caught in, which is, you know, get married and have kids. Yeah. For example, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. The guy, the guy with his little groupies who's like, mescaline's the best. Yeah. That guy's not the bad thing that Neo... That Neo's running for. And I, and to me, he was. I was like, man, I this stuff is always gross and I'm always happy Neo will escape. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... <laughs> That's how I watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> very cute, man. Yeah, it's very cute. It's very cute. And it was funny that until until we talked about watching The Matrix again, I never thought, thought about that mm-hmm. consciously. Like, oh yeah, no, the opposite. Uh, I'm sure we all have blind spots like that, so yeah. I don't. I don't mean yeah, to single sure. you out. It's just a funny one to yeah. talk about. You know, I, we, me and Jake, we probably all have blind spots. We just haven't even Got realized because yeah. that's the nature of blind spots. But I definitely tapped into the nihilism of this movie. So this movie is potently nostalgic for me in a way that's probably not healthy. It just 
takes me back to such a specific time and such a specific vibe. I remember recently in Evansville, me and Meredith are new to town, so we're trying out different stores and stuff. We went into a what we thought was a bookstore, but it turned out to be more of a comic book nerd mm-hmm. kind of shop. And Meredith just felt so bad about being there. And there's these guys at the counter and they're all talking about anime stuff and they're all, you know, these these nerds, these smelly nerd i mean just the stereotype comic book guy from the simpsons they're all that guy mm-hmm. and they're all they're having this deep discussion about the minutia of something or other and you just look around and there's posters of neil gaiman stuff on the walls and kind of dark sexual stuff and skulls yeah, and horror movie dolls horror, horror movie dolls and all this stuff yeah i've been into that store yeah and when i go into a store like that there's part of me that really hates it and is like how could i ever have been this guy this guy but then there's part of me that's like oh yeah there, there's a little hit like i remember what this drug was like because and it's not that i ever liked all that stuff because it is just the culture of death and debauchery but man it felt so good in the 90s when i was a kid to have how do i explain this so culture is currency right like if if, if you if you know everything about wine then you can show up at any vineyard and you can walk up to the guy and you can start talking to him and you can have power and mm-hmm. you can have a conversation and you can make a friend. And if you're interested in his daughter, you can date her. Or you can seduce her. Like you have the power to, to access the world of wine because mm-hmm. you know about wine. If you know about sports, same yeah. thing. And for a particular subset of losers and nerds, knowing about Hong Kong action movies and anime mm-hmm. and italian splatter films and cinema nasties and cannibal holocaust and whatever the dark edges of what was being done in film and animation and all that stuff was so potent and and to this day i don't think i could do it anymore but there's a time where i could walk into a store like that and it's like i'm friends with everybody because i can talk the lingo because i know the things like i have that currency to to spend And it was so powerful and it's so empowering and it makes you understand if anyone's out there, that's an idiot. I'm not describing a good thing. I'm just describing a thing. Yeah. And and Mm -hmm. I grew up in Evansville and I have no idea what store you're talking about, but I know that if I walked into it, I would feel really stupid. Yeah. You'd feel stupid and you'd feel gross. And and everybody there would love how stupid I felt. Except actually, funnily enough, Jake, you have, you don't have all the currency, but you have your own, what's like a, a Bitcoin that's not, like not Bitcoin, like uh, Ethereum. Yeah, you, but, but you have like Dogecoin, not Dogecoin. You have like one of the ones no one that, that's like not that powerful, but kind of powerful that's on the side because you could talk Clone Wars all day with those people. You could talk new Star Wars. So you have one currency have, to spend. one little thing in my pocket. Yeah, you have yeah. one thing in your pocket. But I had a plethora of things. And if, you know, that guy named out there a Korean horror movie, well, I'd seen the other one that the director did, you know. And I knew Cowboy Bebop and Adult Swim was part of this culture, certainly. And and so if you think about culture as a currency, what happened in the 90s with that nerd culture is the currency got inflated in a crazy way. And so you had all this Went stuff. Went on the bull run of it, all bull runs. Yeah, it really did. And so you had this stuff where like, okay, this is my currency and I can spend it with like three people in my crummy Midwest town. Uh-huh. But then this thing called the internet comes along and Anna Cool News and Bloody Disgusting and all this stuff, Joe Blow, come along and these forums and these chat rooms and it's like, and, and Comic-Con and all this stuff and the age of the nerd. And, and you just felt so empowered, like you'd been collecting 
bottle caps your whole life. And suddenly you stepped through a, a portal into a world where bottle caps were, you know, this is like the people that bought Bitcoin when it was worth a mm-hmm. dollar and suddenly it's worth $50,000. Almost 60 as we speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think ultimately the bubble burst. Like, I don't, I don't think we still actually live in the world where nerds rule. I think this is why the Matrix 2 is kind of a cool conceit because if you watch the Matrix 2, what you realize, what the architect tells Neo essentially is that there's always the statistical anomaly of a chosen one and of people who reject the program. And so they've controlled for it by always giving them a messiah and then letting them build their little resistance and then wiping it out. And then instead of trying to repress the resistance, they let them build another resistance. And so what I think, what I think, <laughs> what I think nerd culture has done is built the perfect matrix where the fans think we get the Snyder cut. Great. So you paid for AT&T's like corporate mon like, Right. You're not raging against the machine. Ner- nerds don't have any power, but you sure can get on Twitter and be loud and they'll say they're listening to you and they'll... How long will the workers keep building them new ones? As long as their soda cans are red, white, and blue ones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just... if, But for a brief time around... This is what I'm building up to. I love the, cake. I hate cake too. I hate cakes. And yeah, <laughs> I, I feel the same way about cake, I think. But what the Matrix did... I think so well, better than any movie that I can name, is it really made you feel like your currency was shooting through the roof. Like if you knew, it's like Jake could go see the movie. He didn't have to know any of this stuff. He could love it. But if you knew Hong Kong action cinema, if you'd Mm -hmm. seen John Woo movies with with John Woo was the guy that really uh, perfected the a guy with two guns and sunglasses diving through the air in slow motion, shooting a thousand guys. Mm -hmm. Um if you'd seen wire foo movies, if you knew that was a thing, if you knew that there was cinema where they attached people to wires and they floated around, if you'd read the anime, if you were familiar with Neuromancer and William Gibson and cyberpunk and all this stuff, like this movie was so flattering. And so if you knew your French existentialism, if you'd read the Camus or the uh, Yolaire, I think is his name, the book that Neo grabs Simulcrum and um, yeah. that, he, mm-hmm. that he hides his discs mm-hmm. inside. Like this movie is so flattering in a way that I think is a game changer. Like I can't name a movie in the mainstream. Sure, Quentin Tarantino, people like that, Kevin Smith, they made movies that were flattering to nerds, but the movies weren't mainstream hits. The Matrix, again, is perfectly calibrated to walk that line. So it's like the things that you loved, all this underground stuff is also the cool, is also the new Star Wars. Yeah. How's it feel to be ahead of the curve on the new stars wars so it was just like it was tremendously exciting it was so much fun to watch this movie so delightful i remember watching it it's one of the only i don't usually do this i'm the kind of guy that engages with a movie enough jake describes his son ian a little bit like this like he mm-hmm. he, re- he likes reading books so much he gets so into them that he doesn't read that many books you've said before yeah, that's right <laughs> and i'm the kind of guy I, re- I rent the movie i watch it once and it envelops me enough that i don't want to watch like i had friends they'd rent a movie from blockbuster for the weekend when we were kids they just watch it over and over and over again i was never like that but the matrix was like i'm gonna rewind this i'm gonna go back i'm gonna watch it again then i'm gonna rewind just to the lobby scene and watch the third act again because it's so cool mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It's just, it, it is like a drug and I can be very nostalgic about, about it. Like I'm, I'm feeling like I'm back in the nineties and this movie is such a perfect, it really is like 1995 comic book, the movie. I mean, they just took all the stuff, all the currency, all the stuff that those people talked about, you know, all the things that I could walk into a store like that and talk to somebody about. And they just made one movie that had it all. Mm-hmm. And 
man, it felt good. <laughs> yeah, I remember that it was like a drug. Yeah. In its own way for me. But I didn't really feel that way this time. Yeah, no, I didn't feel, I mean, I, I could still get nostalgic. I've, I've learned to be honest about the places because, as I've said before, early on we did an episode where I tried to say, you know, wag my finger at Stephen King, but everybody that listened to the podcast was like, <laughs> Nathan, you still kind of like Stephen King, don't you? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. So same thing here. Like, I could still, rightly or wrongly, I could still feel it. I can still put myself in that, mm-hmm. in that, like, man, it really, it just, it, it just felt really good. Like all this dumb loser stuff, you know, I mean, it, you just felt like we were inheriting the earth. The animals are finally running the zoo. Like the jocks are losing, the nerds are winning, <laughs> like our culture is taking over. And again, I don't think it did. I think that they figured out exactly how to build the perfect matrix for us where it looked like we did, but Looked like it, felt like it. Looked like it, felt like it. Like, it's called like, marketing. Yeah, it's called marketing. <laughs> and, and they did it. You know, Harry Knowles starts Anna Cool News in the mid-90s. It, 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 it briefly has some power over Hollywood and influences some of these things. And Lord of the Rings and The Matrix specifically come out of that culture. But then... But Hollywood's always known how to cannibalize and co-opt and mm-hmm. commodify they didn't for maybe a couple of years but then they figured out oh all we have to do is invite this fat jerk to a press conference like just put him on the red carpet yep. he'll eat it up and, and then he'll be yeah. our shill and then he'll be our shill and they did yeah. that i mean it really the matrix is a wonderful analogy they how can we make these people into our batteries oh yeah it's really easy just just build a world where oh <laughs> did you want steak every day yeah Oh, <laughs> all you wanted was access to the red carpet Psst. that costs us literally nothing. Yeah, Cypher, <laughs> Cypher's great joke. Like he, he I want to be somebody important, like, like an, an actor. actor. <laughs> That's the best that he can do. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> well, Harry Knowles, the founder of Anna Cool News, which was a independent movie review website where the nerds really felt like they had some power. He was suddenly featured in films. They made him an actor. They put him in things. And so... They built the perfect cage. The nerds don't have any control. If you think that they do, they don't. But now we live in this world where the fifth estate, as they call it, you know, the fourth estate is the press. And then the fifth estate is blogs and internet and internet culture. Internet culture is supposed to have all this power. And so we have to listen to Twitter and Black Lives Matter is an important thing. And... And that's why we have to control Twitter. And that's why we have to control Twitter. But all, all, but actually, Twitter is already controlled. Like, right. you, you think that the Matrix, you think that you're not all plugged in. When the mob is calling for something, do you really think it's the mob? Or do you think it's our overlords who are directing the mob? It's our overlords, people. Unplug from the Matrix, I'm telling you. <laughs> so, <laughs> your <laughs> when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. <laughs> I love the little sneer that Lawrence Fishburne puts into when you pay your taxes. So, yeah, this, this movie just was on the edge of, of that. I mean, I think within a few years, they've figured out how to commodify it and how to control it. And I think Lord of the Rings is the last time that the nerds felt like they actually had any power because the Mm -hmm. nerds successfully got rid of the elf princess from fighting at Helm's Deep, Liv Tyler's character. Oh, did they? I forgot that. Yeah, she was supposed to. And then the nerds were like, nope, we hate that. And Peter Jackson, I think, actually listened to them. But now I was like, the Snyder Cut didn't come back because of a bunch of whiny fanboys 
wanted it. It came back because Warner Brothers figured out that they could spend a minimum amount of money to promote their service. Their streaming service. Their streaming service. And to have a really good quarterly earnings for the shareholders of their not legacy media company, but of AT&T. Right. And, and Zack Snyder knew that he could leverage that into popularity and power. And that's what he did too. And that's the best you can and, hope for in terms of visionaries and, is people who know how to leverage it well. Right. And yeah, I feel like you can't blame either the corporation or Zack Snyder for dealing with it that way. No, it's it's beautiful. Yeah. It's genius. <laughs> Sometimes. Do you ever stare at the perfection of it? <laughs> the genius. <laughs> like the dinosaur, Mr. Nerd. <laughs> Your time. <laughs> Of course, that's what this is all about, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't blame corporations for being corporations. I don't blame nerds for being nerds. I mean, I do blame them all, I guess, but mm-hmm. it, it's just, it is what it is. You blame greed and selfishness, but you don't blame anyone for doing something that's to the advantage of their business or their vision. No, I just, I don't want people to think that the nerds won. Like it's, it's so, it's just delusion. It's so reductive for the mob on Twitter to think that they've won and for the people who are demanding that superhero movies be done their way to think that they've won. Nope. That, that, that's, that's just a, it's a low level of awareness of how the world actually works. Oh, so that's my baggage with the matrix. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Cool. All right. Whoa. Whoa. Let's talk about the matrix, the movie. So it starts. I did. I, actually, I did want to talk a little bit about the influences if people don't know what they are. So simu- simulation theory has been around for a long time. Uh, Philip K. Dick, the sci-fi writer who wrote Blade Runner and uh, what's the other ones that he's famous for? Total Recall, things like that. Mm-hmm. He, You can find old footage of him showing up at a conference very addled and out of his mind and saying we all live in a computer program. I think, yeah, he, I think he actually he said, believed he it. He said a lot of things that are crazy and prescient and wacko and yeah there's a lot of uh the mythos around philip k dick is pretty amazing yeah Mm. and i think it's it's mostly true like he was just a crazy visionary madman who Mm. understood a lot about i mean if you listen to uh conspiracy theorists they'll tell you that philip k dick has been saying for years that or was saying for a long time that oh i don't know i'm not gonna get into it but it's a (laughs) It's an interesting rabbit hole mm-hmm. to go down. See how deep it goes. And see how deep it goes. Just just how deep the rabbit hole goes. So he's a big influence on this. The genre, the, which started in novels of cyberpunk, is a big influence on this. Ben, you've read some William uh, Gibson. Yeah, right? I, read, I read Neuromancer once. What? I read something else. It's a lot of Snow Crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's by, is that? That's not Gibson. That's, that's um, uh, Neil Stevenson. Yeah, thanks. Another guy in the genre. That's him. But uh, so William Gibson actually invented the, f- the phrase cyberspace. Like he came up with the term uh-huh. for his sci-fi dystopian novel. In that novel, there's people that jack into a thing called The Matrix and run around and do stuff. It's incredibly violent and noirish and sexually debauched. And mm-hmm. and weird and, and obscure and philosophical and just... Just strange, mm-hmm. much stranger than the movie The Matrix. Yeah, The Matrix is taking all this stuff and taming it, and taming it so much. Man, yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, Neuromancer, like I could barely get through it. It's just so 
I found it interesting, but it's not like enjoying a story. <laughs> no, you have to want to read about some of the philosophy and yes, you do. Just yeah. stop for world building and stuff. Yeah. And well, what's what's funny is that Keanu Reeves was in <laughs> was in a really incredibly crummy cyberpunk movie based on a William Gibson story, Johnny Mnemonic. Right. Which which is actually, I think, the short story that that Gibson turned into Neuromancer, mm-hmm. something like that. And John <laughs> and Johnny Mnemonic. Oh man, what a silly '90s action sci-fi movie that completely fails on every level, technically and artistically. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of fun if you catch a glimpse of it, you're like, what in the world? And then Keanu Reeves is in another, is in a cyberpunk movie that works. Yeah, if you want to see like what happens to a movie like The Matrix when it's uh, not working, like you want to see what what a swing and a miss in the genre looks like. And those are the kind of risks that this movie's taking. Like the thing about a movie like The Matrix is if it doesn't work, it's the silliest, most boring, pretentious, <laughs> super pretentious piece of crap. I mean, to have these people sitting around in sunglasses in the dark <laughs> talking about their philosophies. Yeah. If if you're on that knife edge of Lawrence Fishburne is either going to be the father and the Obi-Wan of a generation or he's going to be embarrassing himself out of his mind mm-hmm. and, and out of his career and maybe. out of his career. And, and I don't know, maybe they all did in the Matrix sequels. So I don't know whether we'll talk about those or not. Why don't you tell us, people, do you want us to talk about the Matrix sequels? I'd be interested to hear what our audience, whether our audience cares about that or not. I am a, something of an apologist, I think, for Matrix Reloaded, although it is awfully debauched in several ways. <sighs> I like a couple scenes from Matrix Revolutions. Yeah. Um, Big showdown with Smith's maybe, pretty cool. It is. Maybe three or four scenes out of that movie. Why do you persist? Because I choose to. So uh, other inspirations for this movie, that guy that, so this movie does come out of a bunch of fruity French philosophy. It's all the kind of philosophy that's like popular that like nerds who don't like philosophy, like, like, like it's not like if somebody actually likes philosophy, then that means they read like Kant and stuff like that. But if someone just likes the idea of philosophy, then they read Sartre and Nietzsche, of course, and Camus and Mm. the existentialists. And then there's this fruity French school of the structuralists and the semioticians and the post-structuralists uh, and the deconstructionists. And Saussure. And- Saussure and uh, what's his name? Roland Barthes, who wrote The Death of the Author and stuff like this. And this Brillouillard, or however you say his name, the guy that wrote Simulcrum and Simulcra or whatever it is. Levi Strauss. Yeah, Levi Strauss is another one. And these guys are all about getting at the the structures, the component parts of things and seeing what the reality is behind the symbols and signs and the ways that we communicate. And inevitably what they end up finding because they're godless French cigarette smoking atheists is that there is no reality behind any of this stuff that actually we make our own meaning and that it's all a charade. And so the book that they reference specifically, Simulcrum and Simulcrum, however you say it, is by a guy who's talking about the way that we communicate with each other and the rea- the way that we understand reality. And he's trying to get to the, what is the essence behind that? And what he comes up with is that there isn't one. We just use a bunch of random abstract, meaningless signs and symbols to understand reality, a reality that may or may not exist. So it's all that kind of stuff that this movie is coming out of. It is also drawing on the boom of violent comic books, Alan Moore, Frank Miller, people who were like, we can have Batman, but 
there could be rape. It'll be great. All that kind of stuff, which was quite popular at the time and still is basically the way the comic book market has gone. And then you had anime like Akira and mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell. And mm-hmm. I don't know, Ben, what did they get from those? You you got a vibe. You got a vibe of cool. Like those anime people, they mm-hmm. understand motion and action mm-hmm. in a way that it, it most a lot of directors still try and fail mm-hmm. to bring to a screen. But the 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 Wachowski, I just want to call them the Wachowskis. I'm just mm-hmm. going to do that. The Wachowskis did understand it. So yeah, you. What did you get? Also, I think you got. I think the Japanese have always been ahead. Of, they've been ahead of us on a, a androgyny and on the coolness mm. that androgyny can lend to something, rightly or wrong, or not rightly or wrongly, wrongly. But that kind of sexy androgynous look is a very mm-hmm. of that culture sort of thing, mm-hmm. and they're definitely drawing on that for the Matrix. Well, that's that's a good point, man. Anime is gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like there's something else, but I don't know what it is. Very I mean, much the action style. The and action the, style, for sure. Yeah. Well, anime also does these animated... So comic books have splash panels where you open the page and it's just one big picture of Batman punching Superman and Superman mm-hmm. flying through the air. And it's big and it's exaggerated and you linger on that page for a minute. And people have always tried to figure out how to do that in cinema. Anime does it by stopping time with like you know, the stupid anime lines going behind, you know, as Pikachu Mm -hmm. to take a silly example that people (laughs) might know. Pikachu's floating through the air and the lines are behind him. Uh And then there's more sophisticated ways that anime does that. But the Matrix very much, they were like, how can we do a splash panel in a movie? Well, I know. Let's develop a technology so that we can just slow down time and kind of just observe Mm -hmm. something happening as it's like it's a still life or a statue that we can just kind of revolve around. And yeah, I don't know how well bullet time really holds up as a visual, but it was certainly influential. I mean, it's certainly in all the Marvel movies one mm-hmm. way or another, just being able to bend and warp time like that. Of course, Zack Snyder loves to do it and uh-huh. all that I, kind of, I, I like it. I would say watching the matrix. I mean, you, you, the scenes show a little, but the shots are w- so well thought out mm-hmm. in terms of storytelling that, they make it work. Yeah. Well, it's just, again, coming back to the idea, we have the tools in cinema. We have tools in cinema that we don't have anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, let's u- find creative ways to use them. Right. Right. Just the asserting the right to change the way a story is told in time. Right. Is cool. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. a game changer in and of itself. And so, yeah. bullet time, it holds up. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't matter. Right. What matters is everybody bought it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, as a concept, it was proven that mm-hmm. you can play with this mm-hmm. a lot. And not only will dorky film nerds think it's cool, but the masses will think it's super cool too. Well, and if you watch, if you watch like an old Superman movie, Christopher Reeves, or you watch the Tim Burton or Joel Schumacher Batman movies, what you realize is they're not adapting the soul of comics, the, the style of comics. They're just making movies about Batman. Or about right. Superman. And the movies are good or bad or whatever they are. But they haven't figured out an analogous visual style. Except I'll, I'm going to accept Batman Returns. Tim Burton just creates his own comic book style. Yes. I, I, I would agree and disagree. I would agree but that... this is much about, the, about set design and costuming as it is true. about the actual cinematography. It's more about that than the cinematography of it, right? Like... I, I wouldn't say, not with Batman Returns, I would say Tim Burton is so visually like over-designed in every shot, like how he's thought it out, 
You, I mean, you you could still argue it's not doing a good job of creating a Batman comic, but it is doing a very intentional visual job yes. of creating every moment with the camera. I'm thinking like this for this shot, and he's just he's just thinking about. I everything. would I would argue that Batman Returns is a successful visual movie, and that right. I, I would argue that it works and it creates its own style. What I wouldn't say that it where where I might disagree is I don't think that it is just doing a comic book, bring, mm-hmm. making putting you into. Yeah, how, no, I agree. It might agree. be doing like an old 19... If, if if Tim Burton grew up with the 1950s and 60s Batman, he might actually be more creating an analog to the way that those frames worked, kind of still frames and yeah, yeah, yeah. not a lot of camera movement and stuff. Luchowski's are freeing us up to think, what is the visual analog to mm-hmm. turning the pages of a comic book and looking at those panels mm-hmm. and the splash panels and the way that your eye moves and everything. Okay. And I think all superhero movies have been freed to think that way. And, and a lot of other kinds of movies, like how can we kind of blend these? Yeah, I mean, Raimi did it. Yeah, Raimi did it. Yeah. And some people do it better than others. You know, Ben likes to point out that Mark Webb did it quite well in The Amazing Spider-Man too. But I don't think Mark mm-hmm. Webb would have done it that way if The Matrix hadn't. You know, that's the best nope. place where you can't say it just broke it open. Yeah. So I think that basically covers the, there's also just a lot of Hong Kong action cinema and they've been ahead of us for a long time in terms of that's right. Violent action and slow motion action. Mm-hmm. So if you want a brief nerdy history of slow motion, a guy named Sam Peckinpah made a movie called The Wild Bunch and a bunch of successful Westerns in the 60s, revisionist violent Westerns. And what he found is that you could create these beautiful ballet-like bloody montages of sl- just by slowing everything down and then cutting really quickly through sh- shots of bodies flailing and blood coming out and stuff like that in slow motion and that it could be simultaneously very brutal and very beautiful at the same time. And then Bonnie and Clyde around that, I think that same year did the same thing. Bonnie and Clyde's death scene, their machine gun down and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's this very dance like thing that draws you in. And so those were very striking examples of slow motion, but then our tasteless friends in Hong Kong were like, instead of using that for to make some kind of artistic statement, we can just (laughs) make it cool and have whole movies where guys just have fight scenes like this. John Woo famously did that with The Killers and The Better Killer Tomorrow. and Yeah, Better Tomorrow. And, and Hard, Day, uh, Hard Day's Night. Hard Boiled. Hard Boiled. Where Ringo guns down all the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, Hard Boiled, I remember in that movie, because I've seen a few of these. Mm. You just have these, these drawn-out action scenes tracking all the characters from different camera angles, and they just go on and on. They are these long scenes. I had never seen anything mm-hmm. quite like that in a Western movie. Well, in Hollywood, was you know we've we've always been, you know, we're a Christian nation, so to speak, or uh, however you want to say it, however it pleases you to say it. We have a moral sense that they don't, and so our movies have just never wanted to linger. Even something like Die Hard, you know, our our equivalent action movie of the time. Mm-hmm. We're not going to just have a nine minute scene where guys keep running out and out and out to get gunned down by John McClane. Like, this is not what we're... Die Hard has his own kind of grotesque yeah, brutality. Yeah, it's, it's not that Die Hard isn't violent, but I don't think we're quite as wasteful. Or we, we are right. now. No, we weren't then it's, it's of human true. life. Yeah. Our excesses well, were far less excessive. Right. Actually, actually, I don't think that's we're true. excessive in different ways. We were... You think of like... Think of like Chuck Norris movies. Like mm-hmm. if you've ever seen parts of his MIA movies where he's in Vietnam... I remember watching, that would pop onto TV. Mm. And I remember watching like five minutes 
And there's just this scene where he's in a grass hut in the jungle and he's going to free prisoners. And he has this machine gun with a bayonet Mm -hmm. and the guard comes up and he bayonets him through the belly and the guy's like, oh, and Chuck Norris is like, yeah. And then he shoots him and blows him (laughs) through. And I was just, I I watched a little of this and I was like, this, I was like, whoa, like I can't watch. Like I like action. I like fights and gunfights and fist fights, things that Chuck Norris is going to do. But just like the, the sheer bloody enjoyment of it. I think Chuck Norris and maybe Stallone and other guys were making, I don't know, I haven't actually seen Rambo movies, but they were making stuff like that. Yeah, it's just, it's not as, well, what I would say about, I would would compare Rambo and Schwarzenegger and those guys more to like a slasher movie, actually, and that each kill is delicious. You know, you're going to bayonet the guy and then you're going to shoot him. And yeah, you're going to have the scenes where you just mow down guys, but you're really, you're not as casual actually about human life. It's like, we want each kill to huh. be like Arnold Schwarzenegger is okay. going to rip that guy's arms off and he's going <laughs> to shoot that guy and he's going to impale that guy. And then he's going to smile and say, stick around because he wants the guy to stick around. Um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's a good I, I point. Think the, I think it's a good point. I think, the, or not the Japanese, I'm sorry. The Hong Kong cinema, they just don't care about human life that much, actually, if oh. I may be so bold. So it's just like, no, no, let's I, just mow down guys. Like, let's just have I, them run out. and. I, Okay, I have to I have to share this. You brought this to mind. My wife was a missionary in China. Some of our listeners may know for like seven, eight years. And one thing that she noticed is they don't have a, well, for one thing, they don't have a customer service culture. Mm-hmm. They don't have a general service culture. They don't have a general, we value human life culture. So here's, here's the thing. If you, if you hit someone with your car and they're injured, the government will force you to pay their medical bills. But that, that's a very real liability you have. So sometimes what happens, and I think this is fairly frequent, is that if you is that if 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 a Chinese person accidentally hits a pedestrian with their car, and they're like injured and lying there, they'll back up and they'll kill them mm-hmm. and they'll drive off because that's less financial liability. Sure. Okay. So yeah, that's I've heard those that's stories. Yeah. It that's insane to me. Mm-hmm. But you're right. That is China, and that is even though Hong Kong is Westernized China, it's still it's it has more in common with yeah. that. Yeah. Background mentality. Yeah. And culture. Well, and I think as our culture has untethered itself from uh, Judeo-Christian morality, we're moving in that direction. Our movies are certainly moving in that direction. You can see more of these. Yeah, and The Matrix is an example of that. I think The Matrix is really, especially with that lobby scene, pointing the Mm -hmm. way towards that kind of just, it's fun to see our heroes wantonly slaughter bad guys that they're way more powerful that like they could subdue all these guys pretty easily without killing them. But you know what would be even cooler is if they just blew the crap out of them what was uh, a movie i never saw brad pitt angelina jolie mr and mrs smith i remember a friend told me do you know the one i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. i know it that's I've from about it. five or six years later but that's that's right yeah, I, it's, it's that kind of thing yeah. I, there's there's a famous scene at the end where there's a bunch of cops surrounding them in the warehouse and they could run mm-hmm. but they decide no we're just gonna stay we have big machine guns this mode on all the cops mm-hmm. something like that yeah, I don't remember. Same, it's been a long time. Deal. I don't remember being particularly bothered by that movie. Usually uh-huh. I'm pretty sensitive to that kind of thing, but whatever. It Maybe matter. I don't we, know this. We can litigate. We can do that on our Mr. and Mrs. Smith episode. Oh, boy. But yes, we are more and more. You see those <laughs> kinds of scenes. I didn't watch the new Mortal Kombat movie that's on HBO right now, but mm-hmm. I just assume from the little bit that I've seen of trailers <laughs> and things that it's just that, you know, finish him. <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, and and this movie again threads the needle so perfectly, walks the tightrope so perfectly. Of we're gonna push the indiscriminate slaughter in the Hong Kong direction, but we're gonna set it up. We're gonna have Morpheus say, "Well, they're still plugged in, and so they're the enemy." 
we're going to have Neo look a little scared before he, he does it. You know, like we're, we're mm-hmm. just, we, we know exactly where to pull back so that we can push it as far as it'll go, but we're never going to push it so far that a mainstream audience will think too hard about it or reject mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Very smart, transgressive filmmaking from the matrix. All right. Well, we have to talk about the movie. So Trinity, you got that, op- that opening scene, which I don't think holds up at all as a, special effects spectacle anymore i don't know what do you guys think i it didn't really bother me i mean it i i wanted more or i thought Mm -hmm. i was expecting more yeah you remember it as such a like a big deal Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i remember it as being more than it was but i also was just like oh yeah i guess maybe what i actually thought was oh quaint yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah Which yeah, not every there's true. a lot of scenes in this movie that you don't you think don't that fit, they, you they, don't think that I'd say the like entire the lobby scene yeah the entire third act still I can't think of anything that doesn't work that's yeah yeah but you know it's like oh oh yeah they're saving the good stuff for later mm-hmm. you know this feels like that well and that's one of the geniuses of the way this movie is structured I love the fact that this movie makes you wait for it oh yeah like you really don't get the good stuff well in it in the time you think you're getting the good stuff right exactly and you have no idea how much you're about to be blown away and that that's yeah it's just one of the coolest things about you're like movie. one of the lobby guards you have no idea how much you're about to be blown away <laughs> so so better better than no idea who you're dealing with <laughs> like I, I said earlier better than that tiny fight scene of hers is the is the chase the chase actually does feel still feel kind of like oh wow right like she's yeah She's jumping over giant gaps, and then she's going to dive through the window in that one shot mm. down the stairs. And then hold there, and then mm. have to talk yeah. herself into getting up. Yeah, that, all that stuff still works really yeah, well. That does yeah. work. Yeah. Man. But just that one, she's going to do her Spider-Man, right. Dave mm. Matthews band symbol moment. Mm. <laughs> just like, oh, cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of silly. But yeah, the chase... Well, and what I like about this is this was before... This was before all this stuff was a convention. And once it became a convention, our superheroes became so super powered that it just doesn't matter sometimes. Like, you don't, you're never worried about Captain America or Marvel until the very end when they fight the big bad. Right. I just said Marvel as if Marvel's a character. Well, um, Captain America or Marvel. Or like Marvel. Captain Marvel. Yeah, or Captain, yeah, right. Captain's clearly, America or Marvel. Clearly what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, in so many scenes today, the whole point is, oh, this guy's so much super powered. Let's see how he totally defeats all these people right they're Um, not asking the question and they're not trying to because that's harder yeah right so it's just like how can we show you how cool this character is right now and give you some moments where you pump your fist you're like oh he's that cool yeah you really don't get like every scene in indiana jones it's like oh no he's he has got to fight all these guys what's he gonna do you you don't how do i create a, a suspension of disbelief and get you so caught up in the moment that the movie's called Indiana Jones, and we're still in the first act. Mm-hmm. And but... it's the third Indiana Jones movie. He's not dying now. <laughs> <laughs> he survived a temple of doom. <laughs> but we're in the first act. We're in the second act. And there's still a whole another hour of this movie left. But how can I get you so caught up in the action and the drama of the moment that you feel the tension of, is he going to make it? Mm-hmm. Like that art form, people are too lazy to 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 really engage on making you feel it on that level they really mm-hmm. don't you think about like all the marvel movies they just don't try most action scenes are about like all right mm-hmm. it's time for captain america to beat up these guys it's time right. for iron man to do his thing cool yeah and yeah. that's part of them 
that's part of the genius of Marvel is just like, here's an idea. What if we just acknowledge that everybody knows it's a Captain America movie? Captain America is not going to die. Right. Mm-hmm. Not in the first act or second act. We can, we can get a little emotion out of him ditching his plane into the sea in the third act. But, but here's the thing. The one action scene that everybody remembers, which I think is a horrible action scene. Just, I don't know. I, I, I hate that people love this action scene as much as they do because it's not well choreographed. But the one scene, because the drama is there that everybody loves about Captain America is the elevator scene where all the guys get in and they uh, surround oh him yeah. and he stops the elevator. It's just like, what's Captain America going to do? The fact that we all have to ask that question mm-hmm. there makes it the iconic Captain America. Like the one scene you could name of Captain America fighting, really, like all the other stuff is just like, well, there he goes again. Mm-hmm. But that's the scene. It's because it sets the stakes. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. His fight with a French guy is actually one of the coolest yeah. fight scenes in all in all of Marvel, and that's earlier in the same film. It is. It's it's but it's the it's the opening scene on the ship, which all of that, in my opinion, is cool. Yeah, and that's then some you of the have coolest action in all of Marvel. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but you're right. Like you forget about that. It you forget about it so much that you f- you go back and you watch uh, Winter Soldier. You're like, whoa, hey. Huh. Marvel did action at one point. The Rousseau's yeah. did action at right. one point. They like what this. the heck? Yeah. Where did that go? I know. Why didn't we get more of this? I know, I know. Uh, and the, it's and the, it's but, killer. But, mm. but then you get the, the elevator the elevator scene is the scene. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's just because it's not because I, mean, I shouldn't it's just everybody fine. I, I, I like the it. tension I like of everybody scene. getting on the elevator, it all getting stacked, and you know the mm-hmm. question of okay, how's he getting out of this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the answer is pretty easily by uh, being captain america but, 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 the, but the question was asked and that's the important that's, thing that is what's important <laughs> yeah why it stands out yeah and, and and what's awesome about the matrix is they don't realize as they're making this movie that they're playing to the trope of like the sequels are more we have to do the lobby scene again we have to superpower our heroes so that they're just awesome but in most of the scenes in this movie, it's actually, and even in the lobby scene, we're going to get a shot of Neo crouching behind the pillars with his two guns. Like, oh, can I really do this? On the shoulder. Yeah. Right. Isn't, doesn't that happen in the lobby that's, scene? No, that's a, uh, that's when he, that's the famous bullet time when he dodges. Oh, right. Agent Sorry. Jones or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Secondary agent right. guy yeah. right before dodge this. But yeah, it's like always like, they're just slightly more awesome. Like they're not. There was a chance, even in the lobby scene, that maybe one of them could take it, could have taken a bullet. Yeah, well, it was all a risk. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. No one's ever done anything like this. Yeah, right. No one's ever gone and tried to face down agents. Yeah. Know, facing agents to die. And Yeah. No, it's, it's great. It just keeps pumping the stakes up and making you think, man, well, maybe he's going to die now. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the movie going to do? Yep. If he can barely get through the lobby scene with these cops, yeah. then when he hits the agents, like... Oh crap! Maybe he's just going to sacrifice himself, and yeah. that's what he knows or thinks he's doing. That's what he it thinks. Is what he's he doing. thinks he's doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's like, I'm not the one. I've got to go sacrifice myself so Morpheus can live, and that's just what the Oracle wanted to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that he would discover that he is the one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then, and then he does, and that's the genius of Joseph Campbell, and that's the genius of this movie. And it, I, I do actually remember. I don't know that I could have name dropped Joseph Campbell at the time. But I do actually remember being delighted at discovering the formula the first time. Like the movie felt so out there and weird that it was like, oh, he's the, he's going to come back. She loves it. Like they're doing the Karate Kid. I've seen this a million times. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> like they successfully, they successfully gave me the Karate Kid new. Like it was exciting that somebody had 
yeah. tricked me into thinking maybe I wasn't going to get the Karate Kid <laughs> and then been like, ah, you know, you like the Karate Kid, though. <laughs> which, yeah, Karate Kid's great. Yeah, which is, it's the genius of this movie. If you can take something, if you can take the oldest stuff, if you can take, will the boy get the girl and then actually trick the audience into thinking maybe the boy won't get the girl and then give them the satisfaction that they felt a billion times of the boy got the girl, then, then those are the best movies. And uh, that this movie... Insofar as it works is, well, is like that. And part of that too is why we need new IP, right? Like Yes. We always know Spider-Man's gonna get the girl. Exactly. Mm. You don't actually know who Mr. Anderson is or who Neo is. Like you don't know what the point the Wachowskis are trying to make about the chosen one uh story is. Maybe they hate the chosen one. Maybe they do. Turns out in the sequels they kind of do. Maybe they want the chosen one to die and everyone to feel stupid and Morpheus to have a psychological, an existential crisis of his own at the end Mm -hmm. and to realize there is no chosen one. There's only just resistance, you know, against the power that you just don't know. And the movie's doing such a good job of successfully asking these kinds of questions throughout the whole process of it that like, there really is no guarantee that he's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And then when they follow the formula, it doesn't feel cheap because who's Neo? Like, right. And so... Creating- you, watch, you watch even a great movie like uh, Spider-Man, the first Tom Holland one, and you're like, oh, wow, he uh, defeated Michael Keaton and overcame his personal demons and earned, earned Tony Stark's <laughs> trust again. Boy, didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. I'm so surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he deserves to wear the suit. Yeah. No way that was going to be the outcome of the Spider-Man movie because <laughs> we definitely were going to have a future of Marvel without a Spider-Man now that Marvel paid billions of dollars <laughs> to get Spider-Man back from Sony. Uh, it's like, no. please. Well, that is one thing that felt cool about Amazing Spider-Man 2 because partly because... <laughs> It always comes it always back. Comes back to that. Yep, that's right. It does, Jake. Unfortunately, you can be told. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. Um, part of it, part of its messiness and its ambition meant that actually you didn't know what the heck was going to happen. Mm. I mean, you knew they were going to do the Gwen Stacy death, but right. even the way they did it felt like, are they really gonna do it? And then they just they just left you feeling like. They're crazy. Mm. Like <laughs> I, Sony, I Sony is going to plan like four other Spider Verse movies around this and lead up to some other like a fifth or sixth, you know, Andrew Garfield Spider Man movie. And who knows what they're doing with right. this storyline? Like they're just nuts. And that was actually pretty fun. Yeah, and that's why it was killed. <laughs> I know, but man, because yeah, they it, were nuts. If, if only it, it makes had, me sad. If only it, had been, <laughs> it makes me sad. Been anyway, good in addition to <laughs> I know, I know. So then we, okay. So, so basically, we just, you just need somebody insane enough to be unpredictable and stupid. And then, oh, well, that's interesting. And then mm-hmm. get them, get them, get a, get a third or fourth pass on that script. Mm-hmm. And you can have something. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about the second scene in The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> so scene number two, we meet Thomas Anderson, a.k.a. Neo, and begin our indelible journey into a great performance by... One of cinema's best actors, Keanu Reeves. How do you guys feel about the introduction of the character and Keanu Reeves in general? I like Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. because I just do. Yeah. And I don't know, I think he's just a likable guy. But you hear all the stories about like him donating yeah. his paycheck on Matrix Part 3 to the stunt team because they made him look so good and they, yeah. they worked so hard. Yeah, and this sort of... Sweet, humble, self-deprecating. You know, I take 
roles that come to me and I don't think I'm a good actor, but people want to pay me. And so I just do my best. And I, yeah, he really does have that sort of California stoner Thor. What's his face feels kind of the same way. Him, like him's yeah, you know, very similar. I'm just happy to be here and not sure how it happened, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, they keep wanting me to be in movies and I, it's a lot of fun and mm-hmm. I work hard to do. And that's, that's the other thing that I think is sweet about both of those actors. I actually, I wasn't going to make the connection, but I connect them too in my mind. It's like, uh, Hemsworth puts a ton of effort into just being the pretty sculpted dude bro. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, a lot of work and sacrifice. And I mean, to look like that all the time is just crazy. It's crazy. And it's the the kind of thing that doesn't get a whole lot of respect because people see it as as vanity and a lot of vanity is involved in it Mm -hmm. but a whole lot of work and sacrifice too to just be that guy well i think and 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 reeves puts that same kind of effort into things like like weapons training and martial arts Mm -hmm. and things like that where it's just like he's gonna do it credibly like or he's gonna do his best to do it credibly Mm -hmm. on seeing the way that somebody would actually do it in real life who was an assassin or was you know in an actual combat scene like and that's cool like you have you have a dude that's like you have dudes that are like not great actors not a lot of chops do a couple things well and are humble and sweet and just willing to put in the work like that's i like that yeah i, mm-hmm. I have a great respect for a workman in any industry and keanu reeves does just feel like and i yeah so i i like the legend of reeves i like the videos of him showing off his gun training you know like he can actually do all the stuff can for, actually compete for john wick <laughs> like he can reload a shotgun that fast while in a certain pose with one hand and all that kind of stuff it's just because he works hard at it and it does add, add a certain something and that is a place where the matrix was pretty influential by the way we're so used to it now that we don't really think of it that way but you take a lot of those 90s action movies, you know, let's say The Rock with uh, Nicolas Cage and oh, yeah. Sean Connery. Those guys not doing a lot of training to make sure that they can <laughs> play those characters. You know, I'm, I, I bet Sean Connery didn't hit the gym once to play this elite super assassin character right. that he played. And they just kind of cut around it and get stuntmen and whatever. It's fine. But the idea that we're going to have Hugo Weaving and Carrie Ann Moss and Lawrence Fishburne and... Keanu Reeves in and they're going to learn how to do this stuff. They're going to spend months training so that they can just do the the Kung Fu and we can have wide shots and we can hold the shots and we don't have to edit around it. That's a fairly recent idea mm-hmm. and a new idea. That's one of the things that I really hate, by the way, about the Bourne movie or the Batman movie, Christopher Nolan style, the quick cutting stuff is because our actors actually do train up at this point, mm-hmm. but then they don't get to, to show it they off. Don't get to show it's it it's off, edited yeah. in such a way as to you feel like they're editing around the fact that the actor can't do it, whether that's true or not. And it's like, I know, I think, I think a lot of them actually can do it. I mean, there's always stuntmen. Jackie Chan used stuntmen. Don't let anybody ever sell you the hype that, oh, I do. He does all his own stunts. Nobody, not Jackie Chan. Nobody has ever done all their own stunts. It's, it's a liability issue. You cannot have your main actor shut down the whole production because he broke the wrong thing or mm-hmm. broke anything. And so it just doesn't make dollars and cents. Although Chan, Although Tom, Tom Cruise has done that, shut down production by... Yeah, well, Tom Cruise... And Jackie Chan. But Tom, that's the brand, and that's part of that's, what you're That's getting. the brand of both right. of them, both mm-hmm. of those men. And even Jackie Chan admitted later in life, like once his glory days were kind of behind him, he said, oh yeah, of course I used stuntmen. It's not that I never said I used stuntmen, it's that I allowed my 
other people to, I, I stood by and smiled while other people said I didn't use stuntmen, but I, you know, for certain things have. And also, even if they are not using stuntmen, they're still using trick photography right. and, you know, we don't actually want Jackie Chan to jump off of a, it's not that Jackie Chan, it's not that he's not an incredible athlete that did great things. It's not that it's not cool that Keanu Reeves trained up for this movie. And Keanu Reeves has become, over the years, a very credible martial arts star, which is weird because he's got this, yeah. he's got the weirdest body mm-hmm. for an action star. He's mm-hmm. this tall, kind of gangly. Wispy. Yeah, you don't realize yeah. until he's fighting with Agent Smith at the end just how tall and gangly and kind of, yeah, wispy he is. Mm-hmm. But he's so weird when he, ki- his kicks are yeah. so weird and he's just not, he doesn't intuitively have the body of a martial arts star, mm-hmm. but he's mm-hmm. really figured out first with Neo when he was a little younger and now with John Wick and some of the, there was a movie called Man of Tai Chi or something the, like that. The, the, he directed. Yeah. He's the villain. Yeah. He plays the villain. villain. It's really fun. It's really fun. And it's got a great martial arts showdown with him at the end. And mm-hmm. he uses his bigness to his advantage yeah. there. And it's just, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a very unlikely and interesting physical performer. I really like that about him. Like you can't name another martial artist type that moves exactly like he you have does. to qualify it with type because i still don't believe he's a martial artist i do i mean now i do i don't really for this movie but for john wick i, I believe that keanu reeves i believe he's a combat artist that's for sure yeah yeah hmm. at the very least like i can believe i believe he's more or less doing this stuff yeah. within the confines of hollywood ridiculousness i would say i certainly believe him more than i believe Lawrence fishburne or carrie ann moss even in this movie like mm-hmm. you can just tell he trained hard and knows how to do the the stuff so yeah. he's actually not that tall is he not that tall he's six one six one well tall for hollywood tall for hollywood they're but, they're mostly in their the fives huh. yeah yeah but six 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 one it, you know what i mean though his body is just oh yeah he's just a he's a he's a he's a a gangly type yeah he's just but, a gangly type like he he's just a and it's sort of like a weird combination of gangly but then stocky when he puts on the muscle and it's just it's just interesting to, the way he moves his kicks are very like his his leg is very stiff when he does the kicks and stuff. I don't know. He's just an interesting performer. Mm-hmm. That's all. That was my only point there. And I would say the thing about Keanu Reeves that people should understand because people either say that he. I remember everybody kind of hated Keanu Reeves around this time. Like all mm-hmm. he can, he's just the Bill and Ted guy that can say whoa and oh great now he's playing the chosen one. You know people even people that like the Matrix kind of made fun of him and now he's kind of had a career renaissance where everybody on the internet is ironically. Or maybe not so ironically, but sort of ironically, like Keanu Reeves is the best. We love Keanu Reeves. Yeah, you get him to cameo in your uh, rom com or something right, like that, right? Exactly. And mm-hmm. and people will watch it because they want to see the. You can have a rom com with nobodies, and if you can get Keanu Reeves to cameo, people are going to watch your rom com because that'll be awesome and it'll be memeable and right create a memeable <laughs> moment with Keanu Reeves, <laughs> which is fine, I guess, if that's what people's useless lives uh, allow them to if that's what gives them pleasure great but i actually think keanu reeves does have a real star quality it's not that he's a good actor it's that he's a good beer i mean i would say he's a bad actor like he can never make a line of dialogue sound like convincing he, he what would be really great is if they cast him as somebody who had to use a british accent for an entire movie yeah yeah well exactly That'd be really cool the less said about uh <laughs> as great as bram stoker's dracula <laughs> by francis ford coppola is the less said about that the better i don't think that he you know they give him so many bad lines of dialogue anyway in this movie but like when he goes out on the ledge a little later he's like what am i doing i'm i should be back in but you know 
he doesn't deliver the lines convincingly, but what he does do is just exist and hold the center of gravity and react to other people really convincingly. Fun fact, not the first casting choice by the Wachowskis. Yes. Can you imagine? No, I can't, and I'm glad I don't have Who to. Who was it? I don't remember Will this. Will Smith. Smith. Oh. He turned he, it down for he, Wild Wild West. Like, was, like a Wild Wild West, James yeah. West. So that's right. It was going to be Will Smith and Sean Connery. That's an urban legend that's not true. They oh. offered Sean Connery the, the architect for part two. Oh, okay. Um, all right. All right. People like to say Sean Connery was offered Gandalf and Morpheus. Yeah, they, they actually never offered him Morpheus. But And I don't think it makes sense that it, they, they, they clearly have a intentional color scheme, if I can put it that way with this. Like, this movie is supposed mm-hmm. to be diverse. I don't think they would offer a, the mentor role to a white guy. I think mm-hmm. the blackness of Morpheus, I'm just speculating here, but I think it was probably built they, in. But they might have contrast. If they had got- If they got Black Will Smith to be the hero, we could get a white, yeah. Yeah, but even then, I think you, you're probably right. Like, it plays it plays better to have uh, the black mentor and white messiah mm-hmm. than- the black messiah with a white mentor mm-hmm. in a weird way, I think. I think so. At it least was, in 1999. In 1999, it, mm-hmm. it was perfect. And it, it felt so cool and hip and yeah. d- diverse. And I think it added to the cachet of the movie, even for relatively conservative dorks mm-hmm. like us. Yeah. I Will Smith would have brought so much humanity and color mm-hmm. personality to that role. It's such a different movie. Maybe better, but probably not. No, I think the movie needs its kind of nihilistic, deadpan, everybody talks like they're in a philosophy class. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the movie's well, charm, for lack of a better well, word. Well, and, and somebody who's just a little bit more of a blank slate or an everyman, a zero. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Will Smith is special, period. He eats up every scene he's ever been in, mm-hmm. in every movie he's ever been in, because he has so much charm and charisma. Yeah, like, the, the Matrix as it is about what if I became the chosen one. If it's Will Smith, it's what if Will Smith became the chosen one. Right. That's, that's, Will, Will Smith has always been the chosen yeah, one. Like we've, we've known that ever since Bel Air days. Well, and if it, if he had done this in 99, he would have been coming off of Independence Day and Men in Black. So he was. Wow. I right. mean, for, for, for a country that supposedly hates black people, Will Smith was far and away the most popular star. 100% we just, megawatt. He, we loved him. Like he was the greatest, funniest, coolest guy. Everybody wanted to be uh, that, that guy. era. Yeah. It's just like no comp. I, I, I don't think you could name someone that had the star quality of Will Smith at that time. Yeah. And if he, and if he picks Matrix over Wild Wild West, either the movie's still going to rake in, uh, the movie probably rakes in even more. Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West, James West. Desperado. Rough Friday. Yeah, they like don't I'm want not a contractually obliged to say that after every time Jake says Wild Wild West. Um, <laughs> I actually... can get farther into that rap than you, I bet. Oh yeah, no, that's I went as far <laughs> as I could. Yeah, no, I, I think they I think they made the right choice. And I think as as I'm saying, as I'm making the case, much you compare him, for example, to Hayden Christensen, who's just doing his I I like Hayden Christensen. I think I he too. seems like a nice guy. But a lot of times he just feels kind of lost and he doesn't actually anchor those the scenes in mm-hmm. the and I think it's George Lucas's fault, probably not his. But Keanu Reeves I always I really want to blame Lucas, but You do want to blame Lucas? I really want to blame Lucas. Mm-hmm. I want to give him a lot of slack. Well, I hope he's he, only 19, yeah. for goodness. Sake. I I hope he redeems himself in this Obi-Wan series. Uh, the, the, that'd be Man. really that'd be a really happy narrative to yeah. put on the hidden Christian story. A few things in Star Wars would be sweeter yeah. than that. Yeah, I hope he just comes back and he's like he wins an Emmy or something. That'd be the yeah, best. That, that would be, be so awesome. Cool. And I hope it's for a scene where he says, "I hate them. I hate them all. <laughs> 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 They're animals, and I slaughtered them like animals." He's talking about the rebels to the emperor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that'd be awesome. And not just the men, <laughs> the women. 
and the, the children. children. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dial it down, Peter. <laughs> that's like what happens in, a, in some Lego Star Wars yeah, thing right there. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a robot chicken. Yeah, it does sound thing. like a robot chicken, sadly. Oh, boy. <laughs> But I just think certain people can do can just be in a scene and just exist in it and just react to other people and just hold the center of gravity. Harrison Ford, I've talked about on this podcast before, is really good at that sort of thing. Keanu Reeves, without being particularly charismatic or particularly a good actor, has that. You know, he's just you want to watch him. You you are guided by his reactions and you are anchored in the reality of a scene. And it's not something that every actor brings to every yeah, part. Yeah, it is a little bit of just je ne sais quoi in that like. He has that look of what's going on in that head of his. Yeah, and he, it may actually be nothing, and that may be why he works as Stoner in Bill and Ted. But you take Stoner, you know, guy who just has that look of what's going on inside of him, and you put him in a scenario like this, and have people ask deep questions around him, and mm -hmm. you know, yeah, there, there's a bad way of doing nothing, and there's a good way of doing nothing. And I submit to you that Keanu Reeves is very, whether it's talent or just. Mm -hmm. The way his face is built or what, he's very good at doing nothing in oh, yeah. the right way. He, he, he's a good blank slate. And there's a famous cinema experiment. I think the Russians did it where you take the same blank slated expression guy and then you cut it together with footage of a little girl picking a flower and of a corpse of a dog on the road and of this different stuff. And of course, the one intercut, you think the guy's terribly sad and the next one you think he's terribly happy and the next one you think he's just holding back tears. And, and it's the exact same. And it's the exact same shot. And Keanu Reeves, in a skillful, again, whether uh, nature or nurture, in a, in, a, in a way that equates to skill, brings that kind of quality. You're mm -hmm. always curious what Neo's thinking. You're always interested in how and he's you're reacting. You're able to, to import your own ideas into yeah, into he's whatever just, that he's, is. he's the perfect like, audience avatar, yeah. and it, it really just it doesn't matter that his dialogue delivery is a little bit clunky. Actually, it just especially the way the Wachowskis use it, it right? Just, which you know he plays like what. You know, if you want to say that he's a semi-autistic hacker mm -hmm. type, you can do that and get away with it. It's all plausible. Well, it helps in that they don't write him a mom or a girlfriend or right. anything to really leave behind. He just apparently exists between this stupid cor corporate world where he has no friends and... The cyber world where he's yeah. guilty of every crime every computer crime i think he says well that. what's interesting is that you don't like sympathize with him yeah right it's not like you feel his plight and difficulty and, you, and you're like a, it's like with with bruce willis and die hard you actually feel like sorry for him at different points and you're like oh no but with neo no you're just if absorbed you feel, if you you're just it, absorbed into neo yeah. yeah and if you feel anything you feel his loneliness but it's yeah. your own loneliness, maybe. That's yeah. No, I, I think and that's the all. desire for a tribe of people that understands you and that understands how jacked up everything else is, and you can share ideas with hmm. or something. I mean, not to be too corny with the metaphors, but this movie is really—he really is the ultimate avatar that you just jack into, you just plug into, and see the movie through his eyes. You don't particularly feel like you're saying, Ben. You don't. You're not like sad because, oh, my friend Neo is like you would be for, oh, John McClane, his, right. his feet hurt. Yeah. It's more like, huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. my feet hurt or, huh, yeah, I'm, I'm experiencing this. It's, it's interesting. And I don't even know whether the Wachowskis were doing it on purpose. They probably were. I mean, they seem skillful enough. I think so. I mean, it's more like what you what you really track with is is you you enjoy Neo's frustration and his enlightenment. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what you enjoy. But it's not because you care about i don't know how to put it 
if if you feel any suspense, it's oh boy, I've had to pass a test before. Like mm-hmm. it would be nice mm-hmm. if he makes this jump. Yeah, that's, and he's probably yeah. not I know he's not going to, so oh right. that's kind of awkward. No, you that's know? true. You feel a suspense during the training session section, or I do uh-huh. at least. Or you feel the tension even of the very first test of is he gonna be able to make it out the window and do the thing? And mm-hmm. and that tells you right away that, oh no. In a normal what I would expect is he would suck it up and make that jump, but instead he's being carted away by Agent Smith here. Well, that is how lopsided the movie becomes if Will Smith's in it. Like you were saying, Jake, if Will Will Smith goes out on that balcony, you're like, oh, yeah, Will Smith doing another crazy Will Smith thing. I know he's going to be fine because he's Will Smith. Mm -hmm. He's Agent J. He, you know, he does he does does these things. But Keanu Reeves is just like, huh? Yeah. Ted's being kind of serious in this movie. I (laughs) I wonder what's going to happen with that. But then that place. Uh, pretty strongly when Will Smith is like, oh, I can't have that. You can see it. You yeah, see it. yeah. Oh, he, he would make it work. There's a plausible version of this movie that's awesome with Will Smith and maybe it's a billion times more successful. Probably makes a billion times more money because he was really hot at that time. Right. Commercially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this opening scene and this movie in general is that it has gone from being a really contemporary movie that felt so cutting edge to being... I think if we'd watched this five, 10 years ago, it would have felt kind of clunky, like, oh, they're using those computers. But now it's Mm -hmm. actually come full circle and it's retro. Like, this is just a retro movie. I think we're watching it on the cutting edge of when it's retro, actually. Like, 90s nostalgia is kind of maybe even past now. I don't know if... Where we are in this cycle. No, we're we're deep in... We're deep in 90s nostalgia. In 90s. We're in 90s fashion right now. Yeah. It's one of the most stupid and discouraging cultural mistakes that have happened in a while <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like are we really are we really doing baggy pants and cargo pants and flannel oversized flannel shirts mm-hmm. and crap like that again that really? style of sunglasses is back and and in the scraggly hair and that's mm-hmm. too bad yeah can we can we just skip If if we could skip the sort of heroin chic, like the really skin and bones ladies, that would be a nice thing to skip. Not happening. Not happening. We're going to do that too. Yeah, we've been doing it. Yeah. Oh, well. Well. It's what's weird about, about it is, is the filters that I think probably all of us have. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. But what you see is avert your eyes from somebody who is still living in the 90s. Mm Mm-hmm. And what you don't see is, oh, no, actually, that person is cutting edge, hip, cool. Yeah. And once you realize that, then you have like the uh, per- perspective shift suddenly, mm-hmm. and then you see it everywhere. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. It's when we go to work, when we go to school, <laughs> <laughs> when we pay our taxes. I don't know. How did the technology strike you guys in this movie? Because there's certain screens that look really stupid, and then she pulls out that dumb thing to suck the, the squid <laughs> out of his belly, mm-hmm. like that yeah. clunky... Were you guys tracking with real? Were, were you guys mm-hmm. like this is now tro retro or weird tro? Like this movie doesn't hold up like it, I thought it was. Would. It, it's it's its own little. I I didn't experience it as retro. I experienced it as a cohesive. This is just what the Matrix mm-hmm. looks this like. This is just what like Star yes. Wars or something. Yeah, it's its right. own thing. Even in the sense of, I thought part of how that played really nicely is, you know. Most of the tech that you actually get in the in the ship is is pretty nondescript or mm-hmm. whatever, and feels sort of like cobbled together, like what you might find on the Millennium Falcon. Right. But then 
in the explanation, we're actually in the year 2360 something. We can't be mm-hmm. for sure. 2199, mm-hmm. I think. Wait. Yeah, okay, but it doesn't matter. The point is it doesn't matter. 2199, Jake. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I really Details appreciate that. don't matter to you, Jake. <laughs> Try paying attention during the movie, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that very important correction. That is very helpful to my point. Uh, the, the point is the, the matrix, the computer is locked into 1999 mm. as a really great year. The peak of our civilization. Mm-hmm a really great time mm-hmm. to just kind of keep everybody locked into. Mm-hmm. And so even it, even like I can, I, I that's kind of true actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like things were pretty great in 1999 relative to everything else. Mm. 9-11 hadn't happened yet. You know, Will Smith was at his height and mm-hmm. things were cool and the internet was a thing and a lot of, so just all that stuff is just like, it doesn't have to be futuristic and it doesn't have to be anything else. It's like the machines recreated 1999. So yeah, it's okay. Just, so that's just where we are. It's an, it's its own weird sidebar. Yeah. And the movie's so stylized anyway with the green filters exactly. and everything. It doesn't really and Everything feel... just kind of lives in its own little world. Mm-hmm. It's self-contained. Yeah. Yeah. The only places where I was jarred, cell phones always throw me. It's always weird to watch a movie like The Matrix and realize they only had flip phones. At the time, I and mean, it doesn't bother me, but it's just like always kind of like, huh, I forgot. Cell phones came out like less than what, uh, 2013 or 2007? Or when did Steve Jobs do the first iPhone? Oh, it wasn't before 2007, I don't think. Yeah. But anyway, the lack of an iPhone or a smartphone always throws me. And that dorky machine that they used to remove the bug felt really like a crappy 90s trope. trope yeah, there's there's certain huh. moments. It's always interesting, like in a Star Wars movie when he says, "I'll see you in hell," and Empire Strikes Back. It's like we don't talk like that in Star Wars movies, but they didn't know what people talked like in a Star Wars movie, so they mm-hmm. they talked like that in that one. The Matrix had a few moments like that where it's like if you were going to do this movie knowing what the Matrix's legacy was, you would do it differently, but you didn't, so you did it this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do we end the movie with there's a big kung fu fight, but then Neo's just like running around and trying to get away from Agent Smith and there's no floating stuff or ethereal stuff or anything. Like there's a lot of stuff that you would do differently if you knew we're making the Matrix. Okay, so we meet Neo. He gets the cryptic instructions. The mescaline guy shows up and to uh, get the tattooed white rabbit lady. Yep. Mm-hmm. Invites him into the world that he's going to be redeemed from. according to ben's reading of of the text redeemed into redeemed into he goes that rave scene we hear a little rob zombie the soundtrack of the matrix was quite popular too if people don't remember that it was one of those things that you heard around the corridors of your high school and stuff like that i don't remember that not really maybe it was just my neck of the woods but if i I was going to name like the 90s soundtracks that people owned it would be Jurassic Park for whatever reason. I mean, it's a nice soundtrack, but it's just weird that so many people bought the CD that I knew. You know, not like film snob nerds, but just random people would have that CD. The Titanic soundtrack, obviously, every 20-something teacher yeah. of mine owned that and would play it during study hall and cry. Obviously, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. And that would be the big one. And mm-hmm. 
And the Matrix would be like number four, I think. I wouldn't have tracked the Matrix, but I would have put like Men in Black and... Yeah, Men in Black would be big too. Um, Space Jam. Yeah, that was Space Jam was pretty ubiquitous. A couple others like that. So Neo goes to the rave or whatever it is, talks to the people. We get a little anti-sexism because he thought Trinity was a man. Mm-hmm. Most men do. We're still in that clunky phase of feminist propaganda where they have to make a point of point of it. Even as good as as good at threading the needle as the Wachowskis are, I should call them the Wachowski brothers just because they don't want me to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as good as the Wachowski brothers are, they they still do feel the need to give Trinity two or three speeches like I think I'm the ranking officer and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, that right. You just wouldn't bother now because you just want to assert that women are like that, which means you don't have to make a point out of it. And then we get uh, to Mr. Anderson's job. And yeah, that's that's an awesome, that's an example of yeah. the Wachowski's brothers filmmaking craft right there. We're going to include a little annoying detail, which is also actually a setup for an action scene that's coming in a few minutes. And it helps establish geography. And it's also just an interesting visual detail that it, it feels like it's just adding some punctuation, some comic punctuation mm-hmm. to the boss's mm-hmm. lame yep. authoritarian right. speech. Like, here you are in the real world. What a drag. Mm-hmm. But it's actually setting up. I'm going to need those TPS reports. Yeah. Well, I love that they cast that guy to be a Hugo Weaving type <laughs> like every corporate manager is actually has a little agent, agent smith, smith in him <laughs> yeah yeah if you could do that that would be great and then uh, yeah i don't know how do you guys like the first the first act of this movie do you find but i found that i actually in watching it again enjoyed the first act of this movie the most because i think all the like lobby shootout and everything is so indelible. I've watched it so many times. I'm so aware of it that it's just like, it's lost its power more or less. Yeah. But all the intrigue of Neo kind of finding himself and what's, mm-hmm. what is the matrix and all that stuff still kind of, I can feel a little tiny fraction of the same. Yeah. Thrill. I, I agree. Then we have the wonderful interrogation scene with agent Smith <laughs> helps the landlady carry out her, Garbage. 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 And uh, yes, your phone call. How will you speak? <laughs> yes. <Without> a mouth. <laughs> Just a little <laughs> smile. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really admired the way that Hugo Weaving played this. And it, it was because, I, I won't say who, but we're, the villa's coming back, I hope, if people can get our Patreon for Sound of Sanity to $500. And I've been editing some scenes with a certain villainous character from the show and we have different takes and some of them are really over the top and some of them are really subtle and some of them are kind of in between and it's just in any given moment you can go so many different directions in terms of how malicious malicious let me say that word correctly in terms of how overtly malicious Mm -hmm. you want this character to sound and it's Mm -hmm. really tricky to figure out what's going to play the best because you don't want your villain to just be straight evil hamming it up all the time but you also don't want them to be boring and right you you want to always feel like there's something lurking underneath their passive exterior but then you you don't want that thing to show itself all the time and hugo weaving i don't think he ever i mean it's easy to parody it and make fun of it but he he's just perfect at or the Wachowskis are really great at selecting the right takes. Yeah, I think, I think, mm-hmm. I think it's probably And it's got to be both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Definitely. You don't have 
a character like that where you you don't nail that you just don't nail that like you in the way that you uh, talked about some of those vil scenes makes that really clear to me mm-hmm. you don't nail that tone perfectly in every take right you pick that tone and you play with it and you say try it this way and try it that way and or let me try it this way oh let me try it a different way mm-hmm. like until you lock in and then maybe in in uh number two and three hugo weaving's locked into we've now established this is the rhythm this is the rhythm Mm -hmm. yeah but something that sort of unique and iconic it's really hard actually in retro uh, hugo weaving very talented but also but also very much human Mm -hmm. so yeah only human Uh, I wonder how he feels about that role. I wonder how proud of it he is and how much he feels like crap. I've I've read interviews with him before. I, I, he owns it. He likes it. But also, he... Yeah, certain, he understands the unfortunate side effect of it. Well, mm-hmm. I think he did Lord of the Rings. He did a little Marvel. And then there's a reason he didn't come back as Red Skull. And I don't think it's just because they couldn't meet his price. I think it's because he's just like, this stuff, it, it was fun to do it when I was a little bit younger. But it's not fun to do this stuff anymore. I don't, it's not challenging for me to be in an action movie where they're hooking me up to wires and it's all technical and I have to hit these certain marks and stuff. I want to act. And so Mm -hmm. I don't resent it. I'm happy that I did it. I'm happy that I bought my house and got a paycheck (laughs) and you know, like I is, and he said he would have been happy to come back for matrix four because he's always happy to work for those guys. Uh, But they don't want to. Well, it sounds like now this could be, PR and I kind of hope okay. it is in the same way that like Andrew Garfield is definitely not in the new Spider-Man <laughs> mm-hmm. movie and that right. sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I hope that that's what this is. What he said was that they reached out and they couldn't make the schedule work. I like to think that if they wanted an Agent Smith cameo in Matrix Four, they'd make it they'd work. make it work. It wouldn't just be like, oh darn, Hugo can't do it, so I guess we're not going to say no. Either you write Agent Smith in or you don't. Yeah, and I'll be. So much more excited about the Matrix Four if Agent Smith mm-hmm. makes any kind of a return because the star of the show, man. Yeah, he's the best. Wonder if we'll even be able to watch Matrix Four. Yeah, well, the, that, that's worth talking for a second about. The Wachowskis have said that the whole thing was a trans allegory. It was always intended that way, mm-hmm. and um, subconsciously intended that way. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I don't know. They're confused about many things, including <laughs> the nature of intentions. Right. <laughs> Oh, you can have subconscious intentions, right? Yeah, I mean, they have the, they have a point. I mean, the movie does feel like it was right. it yeah, was right. a pretty effective trans allegory, actually. But yeah. I certainly don't think you have to read it that way. And right, <laughs> yeah. if, if if Christians make a choice to still enjoy this movie on some level, I don't think I necessarily have a problem with that. To each their own, I suppose. But but it's definitely there. The sexual androgyny is definitely there. And yeah. Mm-hmm. More perverse than I remembered it. I think just more on my radar than it used to be. Even just that rave scene felt slimier. Like just looking around, maybe it was just watching it in high def instead of the lat, you know, 15 years ago on home video, I think, because DVD Mm -hmm. actually wasn't a big thing when The Matrix originally came out on home video. Like there's just a lot of details that are going on in kind of the sides and corners of the frame that I didn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Why was everybody so happy about this, uh, this movie? So, Neo, we have that body horror scene where his mouth gets sewn up and mm-hmm. he gets a little spider and then he wakes up and 
then I, I guess the next big thing to talk about is the the infamous red pill, blue pill. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about the Lawrence Fishburne of, of it all. What do you guys think about Morpheus from the perspective of 20 years down the road? You think I, he's an effective mentor? I really thought he was going to play much dorkier and lamer than my memory. Mm-hmm. And so you expected it to not hold up. I expected I expected Morpheus to be one of the things that held up least. I think I don't think I came to it with a lot of expectations. I think I just sort of realized when Morpheus hit the scene that I expected it to play lamer than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's wildly successful. It's just I was a little surprised that it held up a little better than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Ben, your thoughts? Well, as a visual creation. It's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Based on uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman character, the way that that character was drawn mm-hmm. was always this kind of pale figure with his eyes. He w- he didn't wear sunglasses, but they always painted or drew his eyes so that they were kind of obscured. Mm-hmm. And so just having Morpheus have these black holes for eyes and a long flowing mm-hmm. black cloak mm-hmm. and everything. It's, a, it's an awesome look. Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, Lawrence Fishburne does a, does a good job. I mean... I don't know. I I felt a mixture of things like, well, this is kind of goofy. It doesn't play like it did play. Right. And I think partly that's feeling the hollowness of the movie. There's nothing here. There's nothing at the center. Right. And Morpheus is all about making you feel like there is a lot at the center of this movie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you again and again how much there is and how important it is and how much I care. He had so much weight and gravity. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and, and so the more that you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> you don't have anything to say about reality or existence or, or you don't even have an, intelli- an intelligible answer to these philosophical questions that you, you're asking so profoundly, the more you feel like Morpheus, come on. Like, but but, the, but the, the thing is, he's not answering anything. He's asking questions that every idiot who thinks Dostoevsky is profound mm-hmm. is asking. Right. And of course, when you get to the answer section of Dostoevsky, you feel like, well, that's stupid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you walk through that existential angst and, you know, it's like what the the thing that that opening salvo that uh, Nathan said, uh, you feel like there's a split in your uh, splinter in your mind, splinter in your mind and all that stuff. Who doesn't feel like that? Like, sure, sure. He's good at gesturing, but in the end, like what's. What's 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 what is the point of Morpheus's life, and what does he actually hope for? What does he actually want? And the more that you try to take the film seriously on its own terms and say, okay, he he really wants these these answers and these things, and these he wants this profound experience. What's what is it? You know. Well, the one of you guys, I think Jake made the point that Cipher's motivation actually is a lot more sympathetic Jake than did. the movie wants to pretend. Yeah. yeah. Cipher's like, what did you say? I think he says, what did you save us to? What What is this freedom? Yeah. I just do what you say on this dank exactly. <laughs> spaceship. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I could be eating steak. Like, yeah, yeah, I could be having fun. I could be in a world with like real relationships and colors and yeah. things to eat that aren't this gruel. And mm-hmm. yeah, if that's ignorance, ignorance is bliss. Like, Cipher makes it, you can land where you want to, but. Cypher makes a great point. It's not supposed to be sympathetic, but because we're all supposed to want that freedom, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever reality is, we want to know it and deal with it. Actually, really? Do we? Yeah. It kind of depends on what reality is. Well, and again, I think for the movie's intended audience, which isn't us at this point in our lives, it's a feature, not a bug. 
that the reality is so barren and nihilistic and everybody's wearing yes. potato sacks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because. Right. Because. That's reality, man. That's what we think it is. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's dark and hard and sucks, but we make our own meaning. Yeah, exactly. And most of that is just sex. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, anyway, I like Morpheus. I like his physical performance. His like physical, when, yeah, it's, it's the closest it's, to anime that I think any character. Awesome. Just the way he has his hands behind his back, all the stuff that's just on a knife's edge of being cheesy really and so cheesy, really dumb. Yeah. yeah. Like that's the sunglasses that, that with the nose pinch, uh, the piece yeah. nose or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's wonderful. Yeah. No, it's great. And the way when he fights Agent Smith, the way that Lawrence Fishburne plays it like, well, okay, I'm not as good at Kung Fu as Keanu Reeves, but... I know how to act kung fu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, this is really cool just watching you move. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Like, he does a good job with that. I, I, felt, I remember feeling when we got to the sequels, like suddenly Morpheus experienced a severe downgrade. Like hmm. he, was, he was like an upper tier, like super profound, cool guy. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he was just like, I'm a sidekick. And sometimes I act like Morpheus used to act. Well, the, the, to the sequels, I would argue maybe to their credit, but... They 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 wanted to interrogate Morpheus. They wanted they wanted yeah, to actually yeah. ask the same questions that you guys just were. Like, yep. does this guy actually have anything to say? And so their answer was a Not lot of really. a lot of people in Zion actually think Morpheus is crazy. And we as a movie ultimately we do side with him, but mm -hmm. he's not this popular He's not everybody's Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know. Actually, our heroes are the outliers because they want to listen to Morpheus, which is an interesting place to take the story. That's true. Maybe a bad place to take the story. No, I, I think that probably makes it better. I thought it was interesting, but again, I've always been a sequel apologist. And is that just because I'm the world's most contrarian of contrarians? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. We can see how deep the but if contrarian... you aspire and posture yourself as the world's most contrarian of contrarians, are you actually a contrarian of contrarian? Or are you the ultimate conformist? I don't know. That's kind of a question know. that you might get in a movie well, like this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> What's really what going to fry your noodle? <laughs> what, <laughs> <there is. laughs> what does it mean that... Does it mean... I think the fact that they got a black guy to be the father figure made a ton of sense at the time and, and really worked. And we all bought into it without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Like he can carry that kind of Obi-Wan weight better than an old gay British thespian type like Alec Guinness could have. In Is this Uncle Phil or? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And those were the father figures, the, the cultural father figures that we wanted at the time. I liked in going back to it, how crazy Morpheus actually feels. Like you can tell, because you see the first time you see Morpheus, it's a little newspaper clipping and it says like mm -hmm. terrorist or something. Mm -hmm. And Lawrence Fishburne is clearly playing that. He's playing this zealot mm -hmm. with a weird messianic light in his eyes who just has this half smile. He's And to me, that does feel like the kind of person that you would follow down the rabbit hole, actually. A little bit more yeah. than like a Gandalf or a Sean Connery type. Like mm -hmm. you could see why... It's, it might not be good, but you could see why someone would buy into absolutely like a cult, like a good cult leader. This guy is yeah, really weird. True. He's just ever so slightly. He's he's a great big black father figure, but he's also three percent androgynous with the way that he carries himself and his clothing and everything. And he can be your buddy. Like he can. Neo wakes up and outside of the Matrix, and he's just like sitting behind him, you know, mm -hmm. legs curled up. But then he can also be so otherly and. It is. He's a believer in something that is beyond your reach, mm -hmm. and he's opening your eyes to it. And whether or not he's crazy, there's only one way to find out, and yep. that's to go all the way with him down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. And there's something 
dangerous about that. And the movie yeah, doesn't shy away from it. Like if Morpheus is wrong, then you're dead and he screwed you over like you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do, I do, I do like that about Morpheus. I think he's a fairly successful type of this mm-hmm. character. So yeah, the Neo wakes up in the real world. We see the machines and all that stuff. And we go into act two, all the training and exposition and learning. It's it's weird that the entire second act of this movie, it's not weird, but the entire second act of this movie is just exposition. It's just Lawrence Fishburne walking around explaining mm-hmm. things. And it's super compelling. And I was trying to figure oh, out yeah. why that is. Like you would think usually exposition is the thing that you have to hurry through to get to the story. But somehow they've done it such that exposition is the story that you just want to be there. Like even now, having seen the movie a billion times and going back to it after many years and being older and wiser and not even really loving the movie anymore. I was like, yeah, this is kind of, this is compelling, you know, to just sit there and have Lawrence Fishburne explain things. And part of it, I think, is their commitment to visual storytelling. Yeah. Whenever, even when he's explaining things, they're telling a story visually that adds. Mm -hmm. And, And they can they can credibly do it because they've put Neo into a computer simulation in order to tell him the story. Right. <laughs> right. It gives so, you, yeah. It gives you carte blanche. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. It's pretty brilliant. I'm in the matrix. No, you're in a program we've created that simulates the matrix. Mm-hmm. Oh, so now we can just do anything like rack up the baby machines and the, mm-hmm. you know, images of the dark AI city and mm-hmm. all the stuff. Just, We've created, we've storyboarded. This is this is the program we run to introduce people to, you know, such and such a concept, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the little visual lessons with the, the woman in red and all that stuff. It really, right? It really... Did you like the woman in red? I created her. Yeah, yeah. it's my touch. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. And then we get to be a little meta about how meta we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, turtles on turtles, man. I also think, and I believe I did not say this already in this podcast, but I said it on a different podcast that we recorded behind a paywall somewhere. I think if you can properly calibrate such that your audience is neither ahead of your hero or behind your hero in terms of his learning curve, then we'll be much more plugged into the exposition. And it's so brilliant yeah. the way that they do that. We are always exactly with Neo. We're never thinking, come mm-hmm. on, let's get to the next. Like you watch a Spider-Man movie. Or, okay, let's get to Peter Parker figuring out his powers that we already know. You're never like that. You're always, you're, you need the exposition at that point. Right, which mm-hmm. means you're in Neo's head and you're compelled by it and you're feeling suspense And you're sitting at Morpheus's feet having, you know, your mentor father figure just sort of open it up for mm-hmm. you. And that's really compelling, even for a fake thing. And Star Wars gets this right. And I think the best example I could think of of a comparison point actually is Harry Potter, where it's not that we need to rush through all potions class to get to Voldemort. It's that potions class is the point. We're reading the right. book because we want to discover more about this world That's right. along with Harry. And so it's almost like Voldemort's in some of the early books, a bother. And right. in the later books, when everything becomes an apocalyptic struggle of good versus evil, it's a little disappointing on some mm-hmm. level because it's like, I just wanted to live at Hogwarts. I just wanted to take Why classes. Why can't we be at Hogwarts right now? Yeah, we could be like learning more about this world. Yeah. And, and then part of the genius of how Rowling does that is, Yeah. That's what everybody wants in this world is just for things to be normal Mm -hmm. and to be back at Hogwarts, but you don't get that now. Right. And so it's sad. And that's part of how you are drawn into the sadness and the 
epic conclusion of the Harry Potter saga mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. and it's all going to go down back at Hogwarts and nothing's ever going to be the same. Right. And you can't go back to being 11 year old Harry experiencing the wonder of Hogwarts for the first time anymore. There's no going back. And that's also part of the hero's journey. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. But part of the hero's journey is just learning stuff. And so if you can just follow a character, it's, it's Luke and Yoda too. Empire Strikes Back, everybody's favorite Star Wars movie. It's not boring, but you are just hanging out with a student while they're being taught. And you would think, you know, in a lot of movies that can be boring if you're ahead of the character or if you're behind the character, which is a mistake that the later Matrix movies make where the architect or, or whoever the Oracle will give a long speech and you won't know how much Neo knows and you won't really know what you were supposed to take away from that or whether you were supposed to take something mm-hmm. away from it. And you get fed up and kind of bored with it because mm-hmm. it's like you're not ahead of Neo. You're also not – you're, you're you're behind him. You're behind. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just trying to play catch up and you get fed up. But if you can dole out information at the right level in the right way – in this movie – this movie is maybe surrounds the, us it, and binds us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Luminous beings are Luminous we. Luminous beings are we. Not this crude matter. This this movie might be the masterpiece of all of that, uh, of just uh, doling out world building information. I don't know that you could name a better structured movie than mm-hmm. The Matrix in terms of just building a complete world, a complete ecosystem in two hours, always just knowing when to give the next thing. And there's stuff that's so dumb, but you just, because you're mostly invested and because they, they know how fast to go past it, like the body can't live without the mind. So now the stakes are that you can die. Uh-huh. Come on. We could have, we could have written a better, better stakes than that somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, but they understand that they if you move right past, they it. move past it, they give it to you. It's, they don't leave it out, which would be bad. Right. Um, They've established that you can die in the matrix. That was what needed to happen, and you needed to move it past it quickly enough that you didn't think too much about it because it doesn't actually make sense. But also, it's one of the dodgier, get it? That's a pun, I guess. It's one of the dodgier pieces of lore, and so they don't front load it. Right. They kind of sandwich it in the middle of things. And and I I don't think I ever even thought to question it Mm -hmm. until this watch. Right. I I'd never thought to question it. Which is the genius of a well-structured screenplay. You put the dodgiest piece of information in the right place where it doesn't, it's like building a house. You're, this pillar can carry this much load, and so it needs to be in this place. That's what they do. And it's like we've already established so much stuff that's made so much sense and been logical enough. Now we're going to take a little risk here, and then we'll draw back, mm-hmm. and we'll do this over here, and we'll make sure it's all really compelling and visual and interesting. And your audience wants there to be stakes. They want the characters yeah. to be able to die because the movie's boring without it. So they're willing to, they'll, they'll give you that one. But you're not asking them to give you something that they won't give you. And if you ask them to give you love brought the character back to life, like at the beginning of the movie or midway through, they won't. But for no. a climax, they'll give it to you. Even though For a climax where you're suddenly wondering, you, there... you've been asking the question with Neo, is he really the chosen one or not? And... You've been inclined to be like, oh, he's not, you know, they've taken you that far Mm -hmm. to the point of him dying, but mystical things are happening. Then it's like, all right, we'll give that to you now. Right. Because we want him to be the chosen one. And so we'll forgive, we'll give a lot of rope to get that thing that we want, which is actually cue the music. Mm -hmm. He's the one. (laughs) (laughs) And Morpheus was right. She just told him, 
exactly what he needed, only what he needed to know. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, I still don't know. I've, I've, it's always bothered me that the Oracle lies to him. I don't know what the philosophical point or what the moral of that is or why. Does she, does she though? <laughs> yeah. He had to chose, choose to be the chosen one? No, no, no. No, actually, actually what she says, you're waiting for something, another life maybe. He gets another life. Like he dies and then he has another life. Uh, yeah. she, she doesn't lie. She it's, just, it's, it's kind of brilliant. I mean, yeah. Wow. You know, I've lived with this movie for 22 <laughs> years or something like that. I, I actually feel non-sarcastically a little bit mind blown, man. <laughs> Yay. Like, I hate job, you man. for it. But... <laughs> yeah, I made a contribution. Uh, I feel like we're on the playground. <laughs> somebody had a leg up on your movie. Yeah, on my movie, man. Wow. <sighs> Ben's a cooler nerd than I am. He's He's got more currency to spend. Oh, do, darn. Do, now you do, need do, to punch do, him do. with your knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Put him in his place and yeah. <laughs> enact exact some vengeance mm. i'm waiting waiting for it well ben as you'd know if you'd seen <laughs> ghost in the shell too you probably have seen it. i guess we should talk a little bit about the oracle as long as we're there another black lady authority figure the, mm-hmm. the two actually trustworthy warmish mm-hmm. characters that with are are these black characters which is interesting yeah although she plays much more into that's considered a racist stereotype than anybody in the movie the magical mm-hmm. the magical negro yeah. type but you always want to forgive that because it's really effective it's really effective she's really warm and maternal and, and authoritative weird. and mystical and yeah. mystical mm-hmm. yeah i mean and down a, to earth at the same time and she does an amazing job yeah actually. it's really nice it's really well done well again in terms of perfectly calibrated screenplay they are going for this cold nihilistic dystopian thing, but they know exactly where it went to bring, I, know, I was about to say a little color, but that sounds racist there, but they didn't, they know when to bring warmth, warmth it, and like, personality. And we're making a movie where everybody's a deadpan cipher character, but yeah, we, now we got this mama figure who's cooking food in the kitchen and balancing things and taking care of these kids mm-hmm. that are all prodigies and, yeah, and has some genuine human sympathy for Neo's predicament, which is not something that we've seen very much of. Mm-hmm. From genuine anybody. human sympathy for from one person to anybody else. Yeah. And we're going to... And we get some sort of condescending sweetness to, about Morpheus, our, our Obi-Wan, who mm-hmm. then makes us feel like, oh, kind of want to feel bad for Morpheus. Like, yeah. it's like, it's like he, he just got all sweethearted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, the Oracle really you is... You got bless your hearted, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You did. You did. <laughs> yeah. The, the Oracle's like your point for the... She's like the point of where transcendence, you know, mm-hmm. meets the storyline. Like as close to God mm-hmm. as you get, it's like... I mean, she's she, called the Oracle. I know. Yeah, yeah. She's she's called the Oracle. She has a perspective that's greater than Morpheus. She looks down at him, condescends to him, and mm-hmm. gives you the sense of like a divine order, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which it's it's funny how the to me how the wachowskis do and don't want that you know they want to evoke the feeling of pop transcendent spirituality yes. Yes. it's why they have the little buddhist boy with the yep. spoon yep. and everything like that like they, they they want the feeling of the force of of mm-hmm. what if the magic that you experience are actually people who have the ability to break and bend the matrix yeah it's like that line that we're so tired of from every third marvel movie 
The stuff that you call a cult oh. is actually just really advanced science. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, it's hilarious. What's that? Deja vu? What did you see? <laughs> They're changing things. It's a glitch in the Matrix. Yeah. Uh, there's a documentary called A Glitch in the Matrix about people that believe in whatchamacallit uh, right uh, right i've heard of that the, uh, what's the theory simulation theory uh, which i wanted to watch in preparation for this but i did not have the time so sorry glitch in the matrix it's a glitch in the podcast <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kidding <laughs> they're just all of these things that seem like there's some kind of controlling hand over human history and <laughs> obviously the best way to explain that would be that we're in a simulation controlled by computers mm-hmm. yeah yeah that would be it yeah. Atheists are silly sometimes. <sighs> they are. Only sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Least of all in the Matrix. I don't want to believe in God, but I'm committed to believing in intelligent design, so uh, <laughs> computer simulation, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it is just... Anyway, so the Oracle scene, I, mean, I think we've said everything that needs to be said about the Oracle, except for that she really does... If you want to say this movie tricks you into thinking it's not going to be just a chosen one thing, the Oracle really successfully throws off mm-hmm. the balance. Like, you don't know where this movie's going after the Oracle. She yeah. she does a good job of resetting your expectations and yeah. just making you feel properly like you're out of your depth and you don't know what's going on and don't yeah. know what's going to happen. That's pretty great. And then you get the Cypher's dramatic betrayal. Dun, 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 dun. And Joey Pantaleone gets to do a little acting there and yeah, do a little monologuing. And yeah, yeah, it's a good scene. Yeah, I like that scene. I mean, it, it's now I can use now I can use the phrase. It brings a little color to the movie. Now, having a villain who's just having a little fun and who's kind of different than yeah, had, doesn't speak in the same measured tones as everyone else in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to yeah have that guy come in and just do a scene. Yeah, it is. It's, and then did we mention this on, on on this podcast or the other podcast that that guy's kill line is, is stupid? Yes. We, uh, you know, I can't remember now. I don't remember. No, I don't know. Yeah, we've been here all day, folks. But Thanks, kill line. <laughs> yeah. Leave it or not, you son of a gun. You're still going to fry. Yeah, way too long. Way too Move long. On. Cypher, if you just dodge a little, he can't really move. He's like only half alive, so he won't be able to shoot you. Right. You just have to like run or something and you'll yeah. probably be able to get him yeah cypher stands there for a good 30 seconds waiting to be shot <laughs> well he didn't believe it he was caught in disbelief yes. yeah, like deer, just, deer in the headlights yeah just frozen and uh maybe that was part of the miracle believe it. yeah cypher had a stroke yeah. right at that moment yeah yep and there's tragic tear jerking moments not like this not like this switch <laughs> switch in apoc we never knew thee no we really never did yeah, you know, I feel maybe a microscopic twinge in the heart for Tank and what's his brother? Dozer. Yeah, I no, I felt, I feel definitely, a, I always felt a twinge for, for even for Mouse. Even for oh, Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that scene. It's, it, it's, it, it's a good scene. Yeah, it's effective. Raises well, the stakes some. Well, and it's after the stakes have been raised by Morpheus getting the crap beaten out of him and our heroes being mm-hmm. thoroughly demoralized and us having a, a whole mm-hmm. action scene that's not fun or cool but mm-hmm. it's just blood coming out of people's mouths and brick dust coming off of bricks and feels much more like a generic joel silver action scene of the time than than anything else in the movie and properly so i think so yeah then we go into the climax of the movie the third act well first we have 
what do we have? I guess we get we have Agent Smith's awesome interrogating Morpheus. Interrogating you, you, Morpheus. You get three scenes of that. I yeah, well, that's nice. I like the way that they raise the stakes on Agent Smith. You can see a version of this movie where they just want him to play the generic man in black kind of character, but yep. and you can see it actually in the wrong hands being a bad idea to have him go full psycho and be sort of unplugged from his purpose. But mm-hmm. I really maybe it's just Hugo Weaving's awesome acting, but I, I I like the way that they they do it. Agent Smith becomes a a more threatening and entertaining mm-hmm. villain, like yeah. the dinosaur. <laughs> 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 there is one other organism on this planet. <laughs> the virus. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. No, it's, really fun. It's wonderful. And I like that the other agents are confused by Agent Smith. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know. I mean, all of the agent stuff is actually pretty fun. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, and it's a wonderful way of repurposing the old trope of Men in Black for for a slightly different and more sinister purpose after it had been thoroughly sort of made silly and Men in Black, the movie, which I think was just two years before this, 97, I want to say, I mean, 96 or 96 is Independence Day, I think 97 for whatchamacallit, Men in Black. So given making the Men in Black malicious again, wonderful. And then- uh, Nothing is more scary than nondescript white men in suits. And nobody's more killable. Yeah. Well, I don't want to agree with that because it, you know, goes against everything that we say on all these podcasts, but it is true that they make awfully compelling. If you want to feel good about killing innocent people, Mm -hmm. just have them all be co-opted and inhabited by nondescript white men in suits with male pattern baldness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that is the other piece of exposition we should probably... Oh, go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say... Identity politics is what I was thinking watching this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, every Christian Christianity is identity politics in some broad sense, but that just like yeah, what Jake said, these these guys are all possessable, controllable by the white power. Yeah, the white power <laughs> it's, controls. It's it's, it's and, systemic and takes over. Yeah, and it is the systemic you know, this- controller of all of this that needs to be eradicated. So anybody can embody this white maleness or be embodied by this white maleness, and once they do, then the only solution is to kill them, eradicate them. Well, right. but it may even be that the best way to go about dealing with the system is to kill them before they can be, you know, quote-unquote possessed, because they're, 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 they're in the yeah, status you realize, of being a, you an realize extension that of that when power. You, and, and, of course, that really comes in in the later movies, but, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, no, there are innocent people here, but they're not innocent because they're all capable of being inhabited and embodying white maleness. Mm-hmm. And so they're all kill, part of the system. And they're so. all part of the system and therefore they're a threat. So kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them. Because the only thing that matters is the end where we deconstruct the society that's been constructed for us and can rebuild something new. And then the people that we didn't kill can be set free and join us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the only way for them to be set free is to kill the crap out of everybody that's in our way yeah yeah no it's 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 incredibly potent and scary and really depressing to watch especially the scene the the red dress lady in the red dress scene where morpheus explains this philosophy in explicit Mm -hmm. language yep Mm -hmm. and just tells us unless until they're unplugged they are the enemy yep and he's setting up the fact that we can just shoot some poor cop who's eating you know eating a donut there's no cops that are eating donuts i'm sorry cops that are listening to this (laughs) podcast but some poor guy just reading the newspaper he came into his job and we're just gonna blow him away 
And then we're going to have the guy be like, send back up. And then she's just going to fill him full of <laughs> riddle his body with, with bullets. And then we're going to get a nice overhead shot where we see all the dead bodies of the cops full of nice bloody holes mm-hmm. for a second while they gather their wits for the next shootout. Right. Yeah. And the only people we don't have to turn into men in black are, of course, cops. Mm-hmm. They can just be normal people as they are. They still embody... They are the system that needs to be destroyed right? Mm-hmm. to begin with. It, you don't even have to make them into a metaphor. They exist as their own metaphor. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, not to give this movie too much credit or too much blame or to make it more important than it is, but it's just very striking to me that the people that run our world right now, the people that are responsible for Black Lives Matter, for Antifa, for various movements that dehumanize the enemy that is part of the system, they all grew up with this movie, you know, the 40 year olds that run things, the actual corporate or overlords, they were 20 when this movie came out. That's they right. they had their messianic figure tell them that if someone's still plugged into the system, they are our enemy. So not to overstate my case, but did this movie have a negative societal impact? Absolutely. Yeah. No well, question. and then, and then there's everything downstream of that that just continues guardians that, of the galaxy stuff exactly we talk about. Yeah. the stuff we we talk about with guardians and that sort of thing yeah it's just like you're with us or you're against us and however innocent in and of yourself you may be you're part of the system and therefore guilty of all of it and mm-hmm. are just as your death is just as essential as the death of the system it's just it's just the cost of doing business in order to make an omelet you have to break some eggs as a famous butcher once said yeah I mean, our heroes are terrorists, actually. You know, if you want to think about this movie the right way, it is the story of people who say, we want to tear down a system, so that means we can just kill whoever we want, and we don't have to, like, have them draw their gun first. We can just execute, you know, we can just plant bombs. When you see, when you hear people talk about, in the world of the Matrix, Morpheus being the most dangerous, wanted man, Mm -hmm. it's presumably because, and this is part of the implicit story, he did things like that all the time. I mean, he's just known as a terrorist and that's who we're, that's who we're celebrating in this movie. I mean, I always sort of, I don't like it when a Columbine type incident happens and people want to blame Hollywood. I think Hollywood has some blame, but also like physician heal thyself. Like we're, we're, we're all sinners kind of thing. Like, you know, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, realize you have mm -hmm. depravity. We don't have to find an outside source to blame it all on whether it's gun, the gun, you know, lack of gun laws or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do think this movie is in some sense socially dangerous. I do, you know, I don't like the idea of a teenager watching this movie. In some ways, it's more dangerous than the people who opposed it ever knew how to give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not that all, it they, necessarily... all they knew was it glorifies violence and guns and makes mm-hmm. black trench coats cool. Mm-hmm. But it was doing something much worse and much deeper psychologically on all of us. No. And it was a part of, and this is that chicken egg sort of thing that we started with. You right. know? It, it's embodying a mindset that has been taking over. Society at large. Society at large mm-hmm. th- through, through our, our school and university systems in particular for yeah, decades is, upon decades. This, this is, is a part of the mm-hmm. cultural Marxist movement. This is intersectionality. This is critical race theory. Mm -hmm. This is there are the victims and there are the oppressors. And if you are a member of the oppressors or if you are even plugged into the oppressor system, then Mm -hmm. you are not human and you should die. You need to get woke. And if you are not woke and if you're not one of the woke, 
Mm-hmm. then you are a part of the system and therefore a perpetuator of it and you are guilty and it doesn't matter how ignorant you are mm-hmm. of the fact that you're plugged into the matrix. You're not woke and so you must go. You mm-hmm. must, you have two choices, get woke or die. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level, the movie plays, and this is not to its credit, this is to its detriment, but the movie is more entertaining for that reason. If if you, as I said before, if you knew that those cops were all just computer programs, it wouldn't feed your bloodlust and your whatever enjoyment you're getting out of it as much. I mean, I'm sorry to be a downer if anybody just likes the cool action scene. I like the cool action scene. I grew up with the lobby scene. I love it. But there's more of a kick to that scene. There's more spice to that scene precisely because they're executing all of these people. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, still pretty well choreographed, a uh, little piece of cinematic ballet, though. Yeah. I guess we've talked about the lobby scene. I mean, is there anything else to say about that? I don't think so. So then you got bullet time, you got dodge this, you got the helicopter scene, you got a bunch of really great classic <laughs> action that totally still holds up. The best bullet time when he when he does his little right before dodge this is great. <laughs> and I've never seen anyone move so fast. It wasn't fast enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good, good stuff. Really fun. Really fun. You go into a giant minigun shootout <laughs> from the helicopter. That's really fun. Yeah, my wife was who who hated this movie. By the way, maybe worth saying she she had never seen she'd seen bits and pieces, but she'd never just sat down and watched the Matrix. And she was just like, "Why are we watching this thoroughly?" She actually these are her words. She said, "This nihilistic, cynical, mean movie, or something like that." And I think we just had a baby, so the little shot of the baby in the pod hooked mm-hmm. up really offended her and she was just out at like mm-hmm. end of end of story this movie's trash cannot mm-hmm. handle it even if you as i tried to mansplain to her they're the bad guys sweetie of course they <laughs> they do bad things <laughs> she said well i don't know why keanu reeves has to be in the same movie with these bad people <laughs> well i don't think there's much of a movie if we don't have a bad guy but anyway she was out after that but you know always fun to watch a movie with someone who hates it but what was my point about all that? I don't forget. Even your checked out mm-hmm. wife when this scene happened. Oh, she was like, don't hit Morpheus. Why, <laughs> why are you shooting this Gatling gun? <laughs> and I never thought about it before, but it does seem like a rather irresponsible. Well, he was, he's, if you follow the bullet pattern, he's aiming around Morpheus. Mm. <laughs> it's actually a pretty carefully constructed idea. Right. For the scene, yeah. Which, which makes it fun. Yeah. Which makes it fun. It actually... Yeah, anyway, you just notice how, how Neo's aiming up and down the room mm. in these strokes to get all the agents, but not Morpheus. So. Yeah. Well, and I love the water, and the, the Wachowskis yeah. just always know where to add a punctuation mark to a scene, so the bullets raining down from mm-hmm. the helicopter, <laughs> things like that. Like, yeah. let's just pause, let's breathe, let's bask in how awesome <laughs> guns are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This movie is so, I mean, the NRA must have just been so happy. I mean, for coming from a bunch of lefties that presumably are not uh, Second Amendment fans, like how many guns must this movie have sold? Like, man, guns are so cool. Guns, lots of guns, automatic weapons. Guns. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of guns. (laughs) I mean, you cannot name. It's just, it's funny. Those hypocrites in Hollywood, Holly weird. Um (laughs) So, yeah, I think we're to the big uh, martial arts showdown, the Karate Kid ending, uh, the subway fight. 
which I still think is awesome. It is. I, awesome. I, I think it really holds up. I think it's one of the best oh, kind of martial arts showdown, certainly of its time. And certainly in the West, like you could, yeah. you could name a dozen, you know, Hong Kong movies that do that kind of thing better, I suppose. But in terms of mm-hmm. just a mainstream American movie, I don't know that we've, and could you name a better mono e mono karate fight type thing in an American movie I, off the top of your head? Even if I could, maybe I think what I'd have a hard time coming up with is one that did more storytelling mm-hmm. because it's, it's, you, you established Agent Smith so well and Neo so well by this point that you're watching the drama of like Neo's self-confidence and how strong is he really in, in, in a way that's just more exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have this whole, you have the sci-fi context, you have, I don't know, some reality bending going on that explains the wire foo and, 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 and then you have, you have them just dialing it in completely with the editing and the score, mm-hmm. bum, 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 you know, and at mm-hmm. that, at that, that one beat, you know, he's smashing through a pillar right. with his hand and it's just, it's just perfect. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is a better one. But it's hard to think of, especially after you've just seen it. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. like, well, that was so cool. So you're saying this is better than Charlie's Angels full throttle? Nathan, <laughs> I, I couldn't say that in good conscience. <laughs> I think you could say that in perfect conscience. <laughs> oh, man. Have you actually seen Charlie's Angels full throttle? Uh, I remember something about Demi Moore falling through a floor into fire or something like Whoa. that. Okay. Um, All right. In the movie. But yeah, I don't don't remember much. But <laughs> I would have been in my. It's a movie that's come out, so I guess I have to see it. Uh, <laughs> phase back then, so I saw a lot of garbage. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we haven't really talked about the score. The score rules in this movie, yeah, and still holds up and super influential. I mean, that whole not the, not the first movie to marry sort of a club music that you know mm-hmm. with action, but the best and. Everybody's done it since then, and yeah. Well, and, and and the main score is not, of course, techno-y really, mm-hmm. but it is. It, it's using a lot of. It's using what sounds like train whistle sounds, mm-hmm. that kind of dissonance, and then it's using percussion really effectively, and it'll give you these little kind of light motif, mm-hmm. almost beats or melodic beats from time to time. You know, mm-hmm. stuff like stuff that Hans Zimmer does really well, but this is not Hans Zimmer. It's another guy, Don Davis. Yeah, and I I like this better than anything that Hans Zimmer has ever done, I think. Really? I, I like being able to, maybe it, just call me a schlub who doesn't under, maybe Hans Zimmer is beyond me. It's entirely possible. But I like I that the that. Matrix gives me hooks. Mm-hmm. I like that it's always going to go, and have the little horn yeah. uh, thing when somebody does something oh, it's, really cool. It's great. Yeah, I just, I love the score. I think a large part of the immersive feeling that you felt of this world is just through that that score adds so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, remembering it was like remembering a song that you liked mm-hmm. when I was a teenager. Like, this, it's like the song would play through my head and I would, I would, I would hear the music and see, see the edits, see the shots. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, just grabbed me. It's good stuff. Yeah. Let's see here. Yes. Then we have that big long chase scene, which I always forget about. Like Neo spends a long time running from Agent Smith, mm-hmm. and then he gets shot, and then he's resurrected by true love, as one is, and the audience <laughs> is completely ready to just go along with it. <laughs> it violates every rule of the movie. He's dead. <laughs> it's, it doesn't matter. It's what we want, and it 
you know, we all are sort of aware that it's following a trope that we've seen before and we're happy that it is. And I never at the t- I actually in this viewing felt like they, oh, they are sort of laying in that Trinity likes him. Mm-hmm. Watching it as a kid, I was just always like, no, this I don't buy this romance. Even then, I was like, this is incredible. It actually felt more credible huh. now. Not that it ever, it just still doesn't feel credible to me. But yeah. you can see that they're doing it. They have all the little beats where she's like, I just want to say, oh, never mind. Like they, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they hit those beats, but yeah, but man. there's, but there's nothing, there's nothing in the relationship to what does she love? Why? You know? Yeah. The two stars don't have a single lick of chemistry. The time they have the most chemistry is when they first meet in the club and they have to pretend like they love each other so they can have, or that they're into each other so they can have a discreet conversation and she has to wear a dress and pretend to be like a femme fatale like a woman and it would be like in a movie which right actually adds a little something to you don't say <laughs> yes well you know i i think by the time you get to revolution like trinity's death scene oh spoilers mm-hmm. sorry folks um <laughs> i'm just trying to hold back the tears <laughs> it ah, they have some chemistry they have they have enough of a shared relationship in the movie that they've I, it feels like they built something and mm-hmm. it works. You know, you buy, oh, the woman I love is dead. I'm really sad. It works. Yeah. It was something that they had to try and do. It was on the challenges of the sequels and sometimes yeah, they're yeah, more successful yeah. than others. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. What did you guys... So Trinity is the template for so many female characters. You know, Scarlett Johansson's character. Things, mm-hmm. Right. Trinity was kind of the... She's not the first woman that uh, kicks butt, I guess we have to say on this podcast. But... She certainly is kind of one of the iconic templates of kung fu woman in wet leather that can do this kind of stuff. How'd you guys feel about, did you just think that Trinity was lame on this viewing or did you think it kind of worked or like, does she work on a, like an animal sense, but then a Christian sense you're like, no, or like what, well, I don't know. What'd you, how'd you guys feel about Trinity coming back to her 20 years down the road? She worked, I think. Like she always did. Uh, there's a reason she's so iconic. Yeah. Such a template. The template's all there and she still feels as gross as she did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a tricky thing that they ask. Like Scarlett Johansson can just be warm and kind of maternal and whatever. And then she can do the fight scenes in leather. But Trinity, it actually feels like they're more well, aware of the problem. Like if we're going to make this woman action star credible, we need her to dial down anything that's feminine about her, even in the other parts. Yeah. She doesn't feel as credibly warm or feminine, but that's part of what's gross about her. I don't mm-hmm. know. And it's part of why she works and why mm-hmm. she's a template and mm-hmm. why Scar ScarJo can follow the template and just give some smiles and have long hair mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, come across a thousand times warmer and more likable and still have her kick butt moments, as we like to say on this show. Yeah. Well, the the like I said before, the one thing that was really striking to me is how much they are two and they are an androgynous pair. They could be brothers or something yeah, like that. Mirror images. They're they're both leather clad, skinny. If Keanu Reeves <sighs> transitioned, he would look like Yeah, exactly. And if Trinity. she transitioned, she'd look like like yeah. Same basic height, same basic build, same bit and, and they play into same basic hairstyle. Yeah. They make Keanu play a little thinner than he does in some other things, and they bulk her up and yeah, they, it really does just feel like when they finally kiss at the end, it's like, huh, I have found my female doppelganger. And so obviously I'm in love. I mean, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I be? So, yeah, pretty gross. So the thing that feels the most like their, their internalized transness was working itself out 
hmm. as they claim it was. Yeah. Um, I've seen I've seen Carrie Ann Moss in a few other things. I can maybe think of one by name, but with longer hair. Mm-hmm. And she's she pulls off like the warmer maternal, more feminine thing well. Yeah, she's she's perfectly good at it. She was she didn't have to play Trinity all her life, but yeah. unfortunately I think she was a little typecast. Okay, so yeah, as we talked about, she does revert to the female role. They always know when to pull back. And we do the karate kid ending, and then Neo's the savior of humanity and he can fly and he's like Superman. And he wears sunglasses and we hear a rage against the machine song, of all things, as he <laughs> leaves that phone booth. Pretty cool. And awesome. Pretty awesome. Final thoughts on the Matrix. Does it hold up? Would you recommend it? What do you think? What do you what do you, what remains unsaid on this podcast, guys? As we close out our I don't know. The audience has heard a lot of our ambivalence mm-hmm. slash criticism and what we enjoyed. Yeah, did we like this movie? Um, kind of. I mean, kind of not anymore. It's it's worth watching in a in a uh, film class. Mm-hmm. Academically, it's absolutely worth watching. Yeah. Whether it was the big influencer or not, it's certainly a really important signpost and mm-hmm. where the culture was going and where cinematic culture was going. So outside abs- of that, avoid. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, I I wasn't as I mean, I, I did watch it with my wife who was really not digging it, which does make a big difference. I probably would have liked it a little bit better if I wasn't doing that. But still, it, yeah, it's just kind of it's just kind of lame at this point. I don't know. Yeah, as I was I was watching it late last night and I was like, well, this is really gross and hollow and I really didn't notice all this stuff I'm noticing. <laughs> yeah. When back when I used to watch it all the time. <sighs> I like the first act. I can still sort of get into the the intrigue of what is the all the, all the dumb trite mm. pseudo philosophical existential questions, the splinter in your mind kind of stuff like mm-hmm. eh, you know, I can still get a little buzz from that, but I don't get much buzz from them mowing down innocent security guards and stuff like that anymore. So, I don't know. Meh. More like the meh tricks. <laughs> Jake and Ben are laughing so hard. It's actually created a sound vortex. Right. Like it sucked all sound out that of this That explains room. it. Yeah, they've, they've actually bent reality with their How laughter. How can we laugh if we cannot speak? <laughs> don't have mouths. Because we don't. <laughs> that, that's great. How could you laugh if you can't speak? Because you don't have mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Dialogue improved. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching you die when I shoot you <laughs> with bullets. <laughs> It's our new comedy character, over-explaining Agent Smith. (laughs) (laughs) A really rich conceit that we can mine. Oh, boy, can we? Oh, boy. My my thought would be, it's we already said this, but it's it's absolutely fascinating to watch a essentially Christian story with all the Christianity stripped out of it. And that's the thing that really stood out to me this time. I mean, this is a Western myth, a Judeo-Christian myth myth essentially but they've removed even just the morality of luke skywalker has friends and he feels wonder about things and he likes obi-wan kenobi like they've removed they've stripped away anything 
that could resemble like warm human moral feeling. Mm. And that seemed really cool when I was 14 or whatever I was. And now it just seems really empty and really hollow, but also really interesting because I wonder how much they did make space for everything that I hate in the culture. Mm. The entire Twitter verse, the, you know. Meanwhile, you can go back and probably find dozens of articles about how, yeah, you know, what Jesus does is he unplugs us from the matrix of this world and frees our minds from the, this is such a great Christian metaphor for the Christian life. And we have to unplug from the world and do the things and and just the inanity of the way that. You know, you know what else are good metaphors? Like, farmers doing farmer things like read the parable of jesus there's a bunch of really boring stuff that makes good metaphors like mm-hmm. good metaphors are a dime a dozen but nathan when pay attention to what people are actually saying with their metaphors right but nathan when god unplugged like the israelites from egypt <sighs> boy, they they got used to the desert of the real man welcome to the <laughs> desert Sorry, of the re- I just—it's no, true. That's that's exactly. I, I don't be sorry. That's that's what people. Those people should be sorry. They said things like that. I know, I know they did. I was thinking driving over here today that like, man, I wish I had time to write a brief popcorn coalition, and I wouldn't. I don't know that I would even care that it's that it's a completely lame cold take. It would still be funny. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't do that. No, if you grew up in any kind of a Christian culture, you had to hear so much about this stuff. One of my favorite stories is a good friend of ours, Andy Halsey. Maybe he's listening. He's a pastor. In Columbus, he took his friend, Adam Spady, who was a very passionate young Christian at the time, to see The Matrix. And Andy was really into like the the profundity of The Matrix. And he was like, you got to see this movie. It's got all this this great, like these themes that are resonant for Christians. They were both like young, excited Christians, but Andy really liked The Matrix. And he took Adam and Adam's like a very, very warm hearted, a sincere man. And Adam sits down expecting to see this <laughs> the story that's going to teach him something about Jesus or something like that. And then the druggie shows up at the beginning and it's like, you're my own personal Jesus Christ, man. And Adam taps out, hates the movie, sits through the rest of the thing disgustedly. And Andy just sits there and squirms and feels terrible. Which <laughs> <laughs> is probably I'm telling the story wrong. It's Andy's story. But so Andy, if you want to call in, and tell your Matrix story. Maybe you, you might not even remember that Matrix story. You were, you were my high school teacher at the time. I remember you telling it. <laughs> but I don't know. It's kind of funny. So there you go. It's the Matrix. We told you what it was. You thought you couldn't be told, unfortunately, but we did. You don't have to see it for yourself. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, real quick. I realize we all would like to be done with this podcast, but let's call out. Let's Let's do our our thing where we give a patron choice award of awesomeness to Jay. Jay. I'm waiting for Jay what's to up, say Jay? something. What? What'd you say? I said, what's up, Jay? Oh, welcome to the desert of the real, of the real Jay. The real sound of san- the real. What, what is this podcast? Sanity, Sanity at, the at the movies. Yeah. Yep. It's not a desert. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Jay, you're the best. Thanks for making this possible. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to all our supporters. I hope your lives were enriched by this Matrix discussion. And uh, we'll be back with something. I don't know what we're talking about next. I think this was like our big sci-fi splashy action movie month. I don't know what comes next. But yeah, whatever it is, I'm looking forward to it. And until next time, oh, go to patreon.com 
forward slash sanity at the movies. You can hear me and Jake talk about Clone Wars and other fun things over there behind the magical wall of bonus content for the price of a cup of coffee a month. Maybe you used to eat noodles somewhere, much like Thomas Anderson. But now you're giving your noodle money to Patreon to a good cause. Until next time, follow the white rabbit. <laughs>